How much do second-half performances affect next year's performances? We'll ask Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 8th. It's show number 36 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports about second-half performances, the importance of showing up, and more. We'll have player news from the National League and the American League with Harold Nichols, looking at Billy Hamilton, Juan Nicasio, Reese Hoskins, the Yankees' bullpen, the Angels' bullpen, Yoan Moncada's return, and a whole lot more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon reports on Washington outfield prospect Victor Robles. In our playing time commentary, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at moves you can make now to set up your Keeper League teams for 2018. In our frequent flyers comment, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Milwaukee shortstop Mauricio Dubon and Cincinnati starting pitcher Deck McGuire. Deck McGuire sounds kind of like a private investigator or one of the heroes of those sports books you read when you were nine years old. And in Master Notes, finally, I'll be talking about a condescending whiner who doesn't like fantasy players. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Only three weeks to go. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on vacation this week, so Harold Nichols will be doing both the American League and the National League. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here and heading down to the stretch here. We sure are in fantasy baseball and in real baseball, and there's some pretty tight and interesting races going on. Uh, I, geez, I sure wouldn't want to be in a National League league or even a mixed league with a tight stolen base category if I had Billy Hamilton of the Reds. He broke his thumb and has gone on to the DL. Uh, what's going to happen in Cincinnati with uh, Billy Hamilton on the shelf? Yeah, you know, it's gonna, it, it, that's the kind of stolen base production you certainly can't replace. So there, there are various players who could get a playing time bump. It looks like the real beneficiary may be Philip Irvin. Uh, who has been uh, been up and down with the with them this year? But he looks like the guy who's likely to get most of the uh, most of the playing time at the moment. Uh, you know, if you look at Urban's stats, he's been very hot the short time he's been in the lineup over the past month. Uh, but he's not a guy you're going to be able to count on for much. Uh, I think we've got him projected for about a 230 batting average the rest of the way. So uh, not not someone who's going to bolster your fantasy stats, and certainly not someone who's going to replace Billy Hamilton. I guess the question is, uh, any chance Philip Irvin picks up some stolen bases? I know he has a couple. Yeah, he, he might get a couple, and that's a, I, and that's probably what we're talking about is a couple. I, if I were if I were in that position, I'd be checking the waiver wire to see who else is out there who might get a couple. But Philip Irvin has been hot certainly over the past, uh, you know, over over the past uh, month or so. The the t- short time he's been in the lineup, so twenty five at bats, and I think he has about ten hits or something like that. So has been very hot, and, and the, that's the kind of thing that might sustain itself for a week or so. Tom Kephart covered this for BaseballHQ.com and Playing Time Today, and he also mentioned a couple of other fairly well-known rookies. Uh, Patrick Kivlahan is one, and especially Jesse Winker. Any chance we see a significant amount of playing time for those guys? 
Well, you know, certainly it's possible. I mean, the uh, Winker right now is on the 10-day DL with a uh, with a hip flexor, so uh, likely return during the middle of September, but certainly not someone you're going to be able to count on count on right away. So uh, that certainly limits what can happen what can happen with uh, with Winker. Kiflahan has not hit so well since he's been up. He's had 180 150 at bats already, a 213 batting average, uh, eight homers, so a little bit of help perhaps there. Uh, but with that batting average, they may not even get him in the lineup much. Meanwhile, Scott Shebler will move over and get some playing time in center field, but he's had a slump in the second half too. He has indeed. Scott Shebler was someone who was actually looking pretty good early on, but uh, uh, slumped a bit in the second half. Although the last the last month, 17 out of 57, uh, three homers, 298 batting average. So uh, there might be something with Scott Shebler if he's available, at least in terms of some power. Uh, and at this point, might, uh, if that hot streak continues, at least keep his batting average on a decent range. Uh, how about Juan Nicasio uh, with his uh, all-you-can-see Greyhound bus ticket, I guess somebody must have given him. Uh, a couple of days ago, he was traded from Pittsburgh to Philly, and now Philly's traded him to St. Louis for a, a minor prospect. Uh, Juan Nicasio moving to St. Louis might actually help him look for a couple of saves, if that's what you need in your uh, in your saves category. Yeah, you know, it might be worth worth taking a peek at it with Juan Nicasio because the, uh, the the Cardinals have been struggling with their bullpen with Trevor Rosenthal uh, injured and Singwon Oh simply has not been doing the job of, of late. So uh, Juan Nicasio has had a very good season, a 115 BPV, a, um, a 2.79 earned run average, 1.09 whip. So it's been pitching very well and actually pitching very well over the last over the last month. Uh, if you look at it, his ERA doesn't look all that good. It's 5.79, but his BPV has been 134 over the last month. So uh, uh, six strikeouts, no walks during that period uh, has pitched pretty well. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a situation in St. Louis where they might uh, certainly give him a shot in the ninth inning to see what he can produce, given that they've been struggling there. I was thinking the same thing. He was in the mix in Pittsburgh as a possible closer. They never really seemed to give him a complete uh, total run at the role, but uh, he seems to have the skills as well. Yeah, it looks like you know, it looks like the skills could be there for Juan Nicasio, certainly in terms of, of what we're looking at. He's uh, uh, you know he's only thirty years old. He's got some uh, some experience, so uh, I, it, it's a sort of thing that when. I think when, when uh, Rosenthal went down, they sort of said they're going to go with the hot hand, and Nicasio might have a hotter hand than anyone uh, currently in the St. Louis bullpen in terms of the ninth inning. He's striking out nine per nine innings, which is good, only walking 2.6 per nine innings. So those are the kind of skills you need to see in a closer. Maybe he could be worth looking at Juan Nicasio if you need saves in your league. Uh, back to Cincinnati, they shut down starting pitcher Luis Castillo, who was having a pretty fine season, something of a rarity in the Queen City. Castillo was mentioned in a column by Stephen Nickrand about August leaders and base performance value. Tom Kephart also covering the story for playing time today. So who gets Castillo's innings and should fantasy owners be interested? Well, you know, the, the move on, on Castillo is not injury related. It's a matter of, uh, it's a matter of uh, limiting, the, limiting his innings because he's pitched, pitched very well. Uh, but with Cincinnati not going anywhere, there's no need to, to uh, stress his arm as we go into the season. He ended very impressively, a PQS four performance, uh, 10 strikeouts, no walks in eight innings, only four hits and one run. Uh, certainly a very nice season ending for uh, for Luis Castillo. Uh, the Reds promoted uh, Amir Garrett, who will take his spot in the rotation. Uh, Garrett opened the season very strong and then faded. He couldn't, uh, his control and command became problematic and he was having trouble keeping the ball in the yard. 
Uh, as So he made 12 starts for Cincinnati before being sent to AAA in early June and spent the rest of the season in the minors until he, he was recently recalled. Uh, solid pedigree as a prospect. Could be worth a fling late in the season. Uh, certainly worth someone uh, to take a look at uh, because there's there's a good pedigree there. Uh, and especially in a keeper league, you might want to take a look and see how he does and is he worth someone uh, hanging on to for next year. Anybody else to mention in that Reds rotation who might be worth a look? Uh, both Robert Stevenson and Sal Romano have been surging in recent starts. Uh, Romano has allowed seven earned runs in 25.2 innings in his last four starts. That's a 2.45 ERA. Uh, and uh, getting double-digit ground balls in each of those starts. So uh, that's positive. Stevenson allowed two or fewer earned runs in each of his past four starts. Uh, seven or more strikeouts in each of his three most recent outings. Uh, last start was really nice. Um, four hits, one earned run, six-plus innings, uh, seven strikeouts, five walks. Um, both pitchers will be late to their next starts. Romano's next start was scheduled for September 8th. It's going to be pushed back a couple of days because of a cut finger that he got in his previous start, and that's going to place uh, put Stevenson's back next start probably back until Tuesday. The Atlanta Braves give Luis Gohara a surprise start on Tuesday. Not so great. Not so great. Luis Gohara had a, you know, Luis Gohara is an interesting guy because he had kind of flown through the minor leagues this year and actually shows in terms of Baseball HQ some potential. We have him rated as an 8B, which is certainly not bad at all. And uh, uh, pitched seven games at AAA, 3.31 earned run average, uh, 12.2 dom. Uh, 4.1 control, so something there's something there to look at, but the, that first start for Gohara was not too good. Um, four innings pitched, uh, six walks, uh, six strikeouts, four walks, uh, gave up a, a bunch of runs, so he comes out of that with a 13.5 ERA. Uh, the question is, will they, uh, will, they, will they give him anything else? And I think at this point that's unclear. Uh, certainly one of those one of those things where a, uh, a 20-year-old coming up and getting his first taste of the major leagues and it did not go well. And that's kind of to be expected with a young pitcher like this. Uh, you mentioned he's an 8B prospect on the Baseball HQ uh, scouting list. Uh, 8 means he's got a solid uh, future as a as a mid-rotation starter at worst. And B means he's pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, chance of getting to that kind of uh, prospect ceiling that they mentioned. Now, we have some news out of Washington, a couple of stories going on there. First of all, they called up outfield prospect Victor Robles from AA Harrisburg on Thursday. Phil Hurt's covering this for playing time today. How does Victor Robles fit into a suddenly shaky Washington outfield? Well, you know, Victor Robles is a is a, uh, a very definitely a top prospect. It was a surprise call up because he's he's still young uh, and and doesn't even have that much minor league experience at this point. Was the number three prospect on our midseason top fifty. Uh, has split uh, 2017 split between high and double A. Combined batting average of 300. Uh, combined OPS of 875. Stolen 27 bases. Uh, this guy has some skills. And his recall came with the news that Curtis Goodwin was still not close to returning and a slump by Jason Worth. So they may, you know, Washington is, a, is at a point of being very close to clinching the National League, the National League East. And so they might just give Robles a look to see what uh, what he can do in the major leagues. I mean, this guy is certainly torn through the minors and, and played very well. Uh, first uh, first game, well, he was served as a pinch hitter on Thursday night. Uh, so we haven't seen and didn't get a hit. So we haven't seen really him attempt to hit major league pitching at all yet but uh a guy who's if you're in a keeper league he's probably already gone but uh certainly a guy that's worth looking at and if he starts to get any significant playing time the skills are there for him to steal some bases and uh and uh, get on base a bit
And, of course, Bryce Harper is still uh, up in the air as far as his return. And even if he can come back, I wonder if Washington will think, hey, you know, we probably could get by without him and we want to get him good and rested for the playoffs. So there's another path to playing time there for Victor Robles. Uh, Washington also recalled a couple of lesser outfield prospects, uh, Andrew Stevenson and Rafael Bautista. Any fantasy interest there? Uh, probably not much. Stevenson was 8 for 48, 167 batting average, and Bautista was 3 for 12 earlier this season. So I probably not no, no one there that anyone's going to want to take a look at, and probably not anyone Washington's going to want to get into the lineup very much. Phil Hertz also updated Max Scherzer of the Nationals. He says their ace is scheduled to start on Friday night, September 8th, uh, just after this podcast drops. Obviously, Scherzer is a must-start in every format, but Phil says owners need to keep their eyes peeled all the same. What's Phil's point? Well, Phil's point is a good one, and it's one to remember as we head into the last uh, the last few weeks of the season here. And that is that Washington is certainly more concerned about October than September, and Scherzer might throw fewer innings this month than his owners might be expecting. Uh, and keep an eye on that for, for in lots of places. I mean, if they're out of the race, do you keep your ace starter out there who's already thrown 180 innings this season? Maybe not. So it's one of those things where playing time can get really uh, confused over the next three weeks. And uh, that pops something into my mind, Nick. Uh, the other night, Clayton Kershaw did not look super strong uh, in his most recent start. He gave up four runs, I think, in the f- couple of innings, two plus or around three innings. And that's maybe a little worrisome. He struck out seven guys at the same time, so that's not bad. But is there any chance, do you think, that the Dodgers maybe uh, step on the brakes a little bit with Clayton Kershaw as they head to the playoffs? Perhaps. I mean, they've got they've got a good league, although the slump they've been in certainly hasn't uh, hasn't helped. They've been in a, in a hitting slump as well, and uh, I've lost a bunch of games in a row right now. So uh, they they may not because I certainly they certainly need to get back into a winning mode, and, and Kershaw is a way to do that. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things that's possible. They certainly want him available for the playoffs and don't want to stress him out too much at this point in the season. But if there's not an injury that was, that was hiding there the other night, uh, I think I would uh, consider it more, more a matter of rust since he's been on the DL uh, and want to get that rust off before the playoffs start. Yeah, that's a good point. The Dodgers have a 10-game lead over Arizona. Arizona's been on fire like crazy, but I don't think the there's much chance that they're going to sneak into the first-place position. And Arizona, meanwhile, is seven games up for that first game, uh, first slot in the wild-card game. They look like pretty much a lock, and uh, they have Paul Goldschmidt with a sore elbow, so maybe we got to be looking at Paul Goldschmidt as a guy who might not be playing a lot for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, that's certainly possible. I mean, uh, given the situation that they're in now, where it's beginning to get really solid for that uh, for that wild card spot, then uh, perhaps they don't need to play Goldsmith and let him get that elbow uh, back into good shape before uh, we head into the playoffs. And finally, Nick, a couple of months ago, Baseball HQ minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon discussed Philadelphia first base prospect Reese Hoskins here on Baseball HQ Radio in the Minor League Minute. And he advised owners at that time to stash away Reese Hoskins' big power potential. And I certainly hope you took that advice because, of course, Hoskins has got off to a blazing start with Philadelphia. Less than 100 at-bats, he's already picked up 12 home runs. Now the question is, how real is Reese Hoskins? And I'll be asking Scott Pianowski about this a little later on in our expert interview, but columnist Stephen Nickrand included Hoskins in his Batters Buyers Guide column about August base performance value leaders. What is Stephen's verdict on Reese Hoskins? Well, you know, Reese Hoskins has actually started off very, very well. Base performance value is a, is a metric we use that puts all the plate discipline and power skills we look for in a hitter together. 
And in the month of August, Reese Hoskins' BPV was 147, second best in the National League behind only Giancarlo Stanton. So uh, he certainly, not only did he hit a bunch of home runs in the month of August, but he played well overall in terms of his control, uh, his eye, all of those kinds of things. Um, it'd be tempting to think of that power that, that it's always tempting, I think, when a guy comes up like this and displays a lot of power to uh, assume that it, ca- it comes at the expense of his plate control and those kinds of things. But that hasn't been the case with Reese Hoskins. A 13% walk rate, 82% contact rate, a 0.86i in August. Those are outstanding numbers and suggest that he could continue to hit for a decent batting average. And that power was backed by some elite underlying power skills, a 196 expected power index. So these are all terrific numbers for Reese Hoskins over the course of of a single month. The the question now becomes, um, when, when any hitter comes up to the major leagues and is that hot um, and hitting that well, the other teams are scrambling to get a good book on that person in terms of what what's the right pitch to throw, where do we throw it, what's the location, all of those sorts of things. And it doesn't take major league pitchers long to figure something like out that like that out. So. Major League pitchers are going to start adjusting to Reese Hoskins, and he's going to have to adjust back. But all the signs point to him being able to finish strong, and certainly I think having a 30 home run, 30 plus home run potential next season. Yeah, Reese Hoskins looks like the real deal, a very exciting young player, and about time Philadelphia had some good news. It is indeed. They've, they've needed some good news, and uh, Reese Hoskins may be the, certainly be the spark they need uh, to begin to give them some optimism. Well, Nick, of course, I always appreciate that you bring us up to date on National League news. And ordinarily, this is where we would say goodbye and go over to talk to Jock Thompson. But Jock's uh, on vacation uh, this week, so you've graciously uh, agreed to look at some American League news as well. Let's start in New York, where the Yankees have placed right-hander Adam Warren, a relief pitcher, on their 10-day DL with a lower back spasm issue, retroactive to Sunday, September 3rd. Matt Dodge is on the story, and ordinarily, probably not that interesting. Adam Warren was not a key figure in that Yankees bullpen. But still, he is a figure in that bullpen, and it hasn't been exactly smooth sailing either for the Yankees of late. What goes on there? No, you know, it hasn't. The Yankees have some trouble with their bullpen lately. Warren is not expected to throw for two weeks, which will leave him only a token amount of innings uh, over the rest of the season uh, if, if they, he's allowed to throw at all, as they might opt to have him stay out of action until the playoffs. Uh, Warren's had a, a strong season of multi-inning relief appearances, uh, outpitching his XERA by more than a full run a career best in a 2.4 control, 3.5 command. Uh, but they won't have any trouble replacing those innings because of the expanded roster. So there are certainly some arms uh, that they could get into the mix uh, with the roster expansion that, that may help. But none of the pitchers getting a few of those extra innings figure to be getting into high leverage situation, uh, considering the Yankees have a lot of high leverage options. So those guys are not likely to be any uh, of any fantasy interest. I mean, Aroldis Chapman, uh, Dylan Batances, David Robertson, Chad Green, uh, Tommy Canley, all can take those high-leverage situations and and uh, do well with them. Well, staying in the Yankees' bullpen, Nick, uh, Batanzas has been scuffling lately after taking Aroldis Chapman's spot as the closer. Is it Chapman time once again? It might be. Batanzas has an ERA near 8, a whip near 2 over the last couple of weeks. Uh, reports out of New York say that Joe Girardi is strongly considering going back to Chapman. Uh, Chapman had a one 2 3 8 inning on Tuesday, and told the media he has more confidence again. So there's certainly something to look at there. And what about David Robertson? He has closing experience with the White Sox. Why not him? 
I, yeah, I kind of doubt it. I, uh, Girardi's been using Robertson in a multi-inning setup role uh, three times since Chapman lost the closer job. Robertson has stayed in for more than three outs. So uh, it looks like they prefer to keep him in that multi-inning, uh, multi-out uh, situation rather than having him pitch a single inning. And he's been very effective against both right-handed hitters and left-handers, 550 OPS or less, so that helps. Uh, more bullpen issues for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. They activated former closer right-hander Bud Norris from the 10-day DL. Oddly enough, Jock Thompson, who's not here, did cover this for Baseball HQ before uh, disappearing into the uh, wilds of Mexico or wherever it is he went. Uh, what happens with Bud Norris and the often beleaguered Angels bullpen? Well, as you say, Norris was the closer until he blew up in late July. Uh, but he did have a 3.63 uh, ERA, uh, 19 saves, uh, so you know it was, it was doing was doing reasonably well. And he should get plenty of high leverage work down the stretch if you need a, a win saves flyer. Uh, but he still has some soreness in the need to put him on the DL, so it's it's, it's unlikely that he can pitch several days in a row. Uh, in fact, it may be a kind of a one day off, one day on, or one day one day on, two days off kind of thing uh, for for Bud Norris at this point. The same is true of uh, Cam Bedrosian? Uh, yes, that's right. Bedrosian hasn't pitched consecutive days very much at all. Uh, they've also used uh, Blake Parker, Kyvin Middleton in high leverage situations. Uh, I'd say right now it looks like a committee with Parker and Norris and Bedrosian. Uh, but at this stage of the season, anybody who seems likely to get an out could get a call in, uh, in Los Angeles. They also have used Merrill Pettit, who's been looking really good in high leverage situations in the bullpen. And, of course, they're chasing after uh, that uh, wild card spot, and they fell out of the race recently uh, a little bit. Uh, given the situation in the standings, do you think Mike Sosha might pl- just play the hot hand? It's possible. It's, uh, the pressure is definitely on. The Angels dropped out of the second uh, wild card spot on Wednesday night, so it's hard to know how Sosha will play it since he's done both things in the past. Sometimes play the hot hand, sometimes go by a committee. Uh, when he has a dominant guy, he'll ride that guy. But at the moment, it's hard to describe any of the bullpen choices really as being dominant. Uh, and I think that's the rub that uh, that uh, Mike Sosha has to deal with at the moment. The White Sox activated Yoan Moncada from the 10-day DL, coming back from a shin bruise. Uh, Rick Green covering the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, with the White Sox are going no place, obviously, does Moncada just slot right back into the lineup? Well, you never know with a team that's trying to set up for the future. But if I were the manager, I wouldn't play him or certainly wouldn't play him much. Uh, he was the uh, the number one uh, midseason prospect. Uh, not been a force since his call-up. He struggled. 189 batting average, three home runs, one stolen base, and just over 100 at-bats. So not producing much. Uh, on the other hand, he has drawn a lot of walks, a 15% walk rate, uh, but also striking out more than 40% of the time. And the, the White Sox have some other young players to look at in their infield. Uh, Lurie Garcia hitting uh, 270 with nine home runs and 300 at-bats. Uh, Yolmar Sanchez, 262, nine homers and eight stolen bases and 408 at-bats. Uh, Matt Davidson, 24 home runs and 345 at-bats. Uh, Nick Delmonico, just back from the DL, has six homers and just 78 at-bats. So a lot for the White Sox to look at as they think about next season and maybe not want to risk any kind of serious injury on Moncada by putting him out there too much. The Sox also made some pitching moves, most notably releasing left-hander Derek Holland, who is being used as both a starter and a reliever, so who gets those innings? Expect Lucas Giolito to pick up the starter innings. He was a top prospect with a 2.25 ERA and a 0.8 whip in his three starts. Uh, he's going to keep pitching, uh, and uh, he's looking very, very good at this point. Uh, with the White Sox in really complete rebuilding mode, there could be other starters they could look at as well. Uh, David Holmberg, maybe Carson Fulmer. 
Uh, and, and they may need to. Uh, just news out uh, that uh, we, we saw last uh, on Thursday night, uh, Carlos Roden was, uh, had a sore shoulder and was dropped from his start. Uh, so they may have more needs in that, in that rotation at this point. They also called up uh, Jace Fry, who might get a look at some of Holland's projected relief innings versus left-handed hitters. He was profiled in the minor league call-up report. So some, uh, some shifting going to be going on, I think, in the, uh, in the White Sox rotation uh, over the last three weeks. I was just looking at Lucas Giolito's uh, game log in the PQS logs, pure quality start logs at BaseballHQ.com. And boy, oh boy, his first game against Minnesota, eh, you know, four earned runs in six innings, not so great. Then Detroit and Tampa, and of course Detroit, not the Detroit of old, but still uh, seven innings, no earned runs. And then Tampa, which is a good hitting club, seven innings, one earned run, on a, and that on a solo home run. Lucas Giolito looks to me like the real deal here. Yeah, he really does. He does look like the real deer here. It looks like he, he's hit the ground running in the majors. So, you know, this is a, a pros- top prospect we've been talking about for a while. He had a bit of struggles in the minor leagues earlier this season, but, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing where lots of people were saying keep the faith, and it sure looks like in these first few starts in the majors, there's a good reason to keep the faith with Lucas Giolito. Cleveland got some good news as they head for the playoffs. They got to activate right-handed starter Danny Salazar from the DL. Tom Kephart covers the uh, Cleveland club for the uh, BaseballHQ.com playing time today. What happens in the Cleveland rotation now that Danny Salazar is back? You know, that, that's a real good question. He made his first start on Tuesday and was absolutely awful. A hit, two walks, four and runs, uh, did not pitch well. And right now, Cleveland's short-term rotation plans are not very clear. Uh, they could go from five starters to a six-man rotation, which they used briefly at midseason. Uh, if someone's going to lose starts, uh, Josh Tomlin is probably most vulnerable to losing starts in that rotation. And it seems to me, uh, Nick, like the, the real problem here is that Salazar has not been consistent all season. Sometimes he's very, very good, but when he's bad, and this is some old Broadway musical, I think, when she's good, she's very, very good, but when she's bad, she's oh so bad. And certainly Salazar has been oh so bad on occasion. Yeah, but absolutely like that. I mean, there are times, and it's coming, it's not been start to start, it's been in streaks. I mean, you know, you'll get a month or, or a couple of weeks of very bad pitching, and then then you get uh, several starts of very good pitching. Great dominance, almost 13 strikeouts per nine innings, but also walking uh, four per nine innings. Uh, be on the D, been on the DL on multiple occasions, uh, shifted to the bullpen before his first DL stint. So, uh, you know, it's been kind of strange, a strange season if you've been a Salazar owner. Uh, he had pitched very impressively since his late July return from the DL. 46 strikeouts, 9 walks, and 32.1 innings pitched in a 5-start span, and 2 runs or fewer in every start. And then he left the August 20th start with his latest injury. So, uh, hard to tell what, what we're going to see from Danny Salazar, I think, the rest of the season. Certainly, this is exactly the kind of guy, and Nick, we've talked about this before, but Danny Salazar is the kind of guy that really... Uh, amplifies or illustrates the importance of risk context. If I was sitting in first or second spot, even if I had Danny Salazar on my roster, I don't know that I'd start him because I'd be scared about taking a, you know one of those two-thirds of an inning, five-earn-run type of starts, even if I was kind of confident of getting some strikeouts. I don't know that I want to take that chance, especially if ERA and WHIP are close categories where I could lose a point or two. Whereas if I'm fifth and I'm trying to catch up to first place, Danny Salazar is exactly the kind of guy I want because he could string together four starts that are just fantastic, as you mentioned a, a moment ago. Yeah, you're, you're right on. I mean, it's back to what you said at the as we started talking about him. When he's been good, he's been very, very good. But when he's been bad, he's been absolutely awful. 
And so if you're in a close race and, and leading by a, a hair, uh, Danny Salazar is the guy who could blow you out of that race very, very, very quickly. And I would certainly go with a more conservative uh, conservative option. But as you say, if you're trying to catch up and need a, a possibility, throw him out there. He may blow it all for you, but uh, you know maybe you've got nothing to lose. And, of course, if he does pitch well, he's going to pick up a ton of strikeouts. We know that. Uh, finally, Kansas City recalled outfielder Jorge Soler and infielder Raymond Torres from AAA Omaha on Tuesday. Matt Dodge covers the Royals for BaseballHQ.com. What does he report the fantasy impacts here? Uh, not a lot. Uh, Torres is a utility infielder, has above-average speed. Uh, he'll give Kansas City some position flexibility down the stretch, but nah, not much fantasy help there. Uh, Soler, on the other hand, could provide a September stats boost if the planets all align right for him. Uh, he did show improved patience at AAA with a 15% walk rate over 323 plate appearances, but contact barely squeaks in at the uh, at the 70% contact line and, and in line, right in line with his major league uh, contact rate of 68%. So we know what we're getting with him. He's not going to not going. He's going to strike out a bit. Uh, and barely make a decent uh, contact line. As a right-handed batter, he could see some bats against left-handed pitchers in September. So a power impact could gain a team a fantasy point or two uh, if the power categories are tight. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with both leagues. Uh, we'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat and occasionally on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our expert guest interview, Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting, the outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south 
for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. Baseball HQ Radio. You know, probably my favorite radio clip of all time is the home run champion of all time, Milo Hamilton, calling Henry Aaron's 715th home run. But if you're going to have another version of Henry Aaron's 715th home run, you could do worse than Vin Scully. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview. And it's my pleasure to be joined by Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, one of our favorite guests. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Before we start off with the uh, nuts and bolts, how are your teams doing in your experts leagues? <laughs> well, I just get a laugh about Tout Wars because I'm having one of the worst seasons that anybody's had. And like most bad fantasy teams, it's it's born, i got to say, partially out of bad luck. But you, you have to make some bad decisions, too. Nobody finishes last without some culpability, so I'll take some. But uh, my team is a train wreck there. Thankfully... I do have something to distract me in the uh, Yahoo Friends and Family League, and I, and I realize, you know, that's kind of a cheat code that, oh, forget about my bad team, let's talk about my good team. But in the Yahoo Friends and Family League, I did something where it's a, it's a mixed league about the size of Tout Wars. I think we might have 14 teams. I didn't draft any starting pitchers. I, I just drafted a bunch of offense. I drafted some good relievers. And as the season went along, you know, I got a Severino here. Somebody dropped Sonny Gray. I got Sonny Gray. I got uh, Nelson of the Brewers. I built a pretty good staff, and I've actually climbed into second place. And this would really be satisfying if somehow I can win this league because I've never been in first place. I've never even been close to it. I was in the middle of the pack most of the year, and I've been slowly creeping up. And I'm probably a long shot to win. The team that's in first has a better team than me. But I've look, I look at the categories every day and try to crunch it. And I'm like, you know, this is doable. I'm just going to have to hit a lot of targets. I'll have to have a lot of things go right the last few weeks. But to win a season where I didn't draft any starting pitching, and, and look, I, I, I did it for fun. I'm not saying it's necessarily the right thing to do. Any strategy works if you pick the right players, but um, that would be satisfying if somehow I can finish that off. When you went into that draft, does the league not have an innings minimum? It doesn't have a minimum. Uh, what it does have is a, it's a five-by-five five league, which I think eliminates. I mean, four-by-four, four, you could kind of game the system by just, just not caring about innings and everything. I think 5x5, five five, because of the importance of strikeouts, I think that makes it very, very difficult to punt. You could do it. Um, the other thing, too, if you win in a gimmicky way, is you run the risk of getting everybody mad at you, too. So I, I don't necessarily want to do that. But there is an innings cap. There's not an innings minimum. Well, if there's no innings minimum, then it seems to make a lot of sense, especially given what you said about the depth of the league, a 14-team mixed, means going into the auction, you can probably anticipate there's going to be surprise guys who aren't drafted, who turn up in the free agent pool the first few weeks in. You you can start picking and choosing and saying, hey, this guy's off to a pretty good start, and you start picking up starting pitching that wasn't drafted. But every year there's 20, 30, 40 pitchers who come out of nowhere and, and have pretty good seasons. You mentioned Severino. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jimmy uh, Nelson in Milwaukee. These guys turn up in those in those shallow leagues. It's the deep leagues where this strategy starts running into trouble because you just can't do it. 
Right. Another guy who's been really good for me, who's actually one of the few things uh, I've done right in tout, is I picked up Brad Peacock very early in the season, just on the very yeah. simple concept that he was dominating as a reliever, and he had such high strikeout numbers that I was happy to have him as a reliever. And then he eventually got pressed into a starting role, and albeit he, he rarely goes deep into games, in part because he strikes out guys and he runs up pitches, he's been really good, you know, backed by that Houston offense, which is, which is great. And then you, you can always, I know everybody kind of understands the strategy now. It wasn't, it was 10 years ago you could get relievers, kind of any, anyone you wanted because people just weren't competing for them. But, um, but I still have a bunch of guys like Chad Green of the Yankees. Man, I mean, this guy never even comes close to closing for that team or pitching late in games. But it seems like every time he pitches, he pitches, he gets like five outs, four of them are strikeouts. He almost never allows a run. He's been great. Tyler Lyons for the Cardinals has been great. Um, and also you have to be open-minded. One of my favorite things about sports is that you think a player is dead. You think a player is done. You think a player's career is just totally off the boards. And then, then all of a sudden he starts producing again. You have to decide what to do about it. I have Doug Fister on this team. I thought Doug Fister's usefulness as a major league pitcher was out the window. But at some point you see him pitch well for a handful of starts, and you're like, oh, okay, I, I guess I'll try it. You know, and if it blows up in my face, it blows up in my face. I, a month later, I'm still having fun with Doug Fister. You know, I was looking at Doug Fister in my American League tout. Of course, it is a very deep league, and there he was on the free agent wire, and I'm in a race in strikeouts. I thought, I know he's not a strikeout pitcher, but he'll get some innings, and he's been terrific, and I decided not to do it because of the risk in the uh, ratio categories. But uh, getting back to your plan coming into it, it sounds like the old Lima plan, right? You just uh, find those very highly skilled relievers and uh, and use them to really get up there in ERA and whip. Are you, are you succeeding in ERA and whip at the expense of strikeouts as the league uh, season has progressed? I'm near the top in most of the pitching categories. I'm probably third or fourth in just about every pitching category. I, here, here's the irony of all this is I thought I had a good bullpen and my bullpen ended up going to absolute crap. And I ended up just punting saves. I'm actually going to come in last in saves. Had I picked good relievers, I, I, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember the relievers I took, but it, it fell apart really, really quickly for my relief staff. And finally, this is also a league where you have a cap on pickups. So oh. I just decided I wasn't going to chase my tail with, with the saves. And I think early in the year, I just thought, okay, I'm trying to come in fourth. I'm trying to come in third. You know, I have some side bets in this league. Um, I take a lot of pride in it, you know, as I do in tout, and I'm going to lose every side bet in tout, and then that sucks. But um, if, I, if I had actually nailed my relief pitching, if I had taken the right relievers, I'd probably be in first right now because I'd be competitive in saves, but it turns out I'm competitive in the other categories. And anyway, I, again, this is not an optimum strategy. I mean, you need a lot of things to go right. I've been, for all the investments I've made uh, in guys like Severino and Nelson, I mean, you know, the guys who look like next year, Severino and Nelson, there's no guarantee they'll be good. There's been times where Jimmy Nelson looked like he was popping and then it's been a false positive. So uh, you need to get lucky. You, I've had a high hit rate on these pitchers and you know, that, that, is part skill and design, but a lot of it's luck too. Um, anyway, whatever. It's been fun, and, and I'm glad that uh, something will at least take out the taste of my tout season because, again, and I take responsibility for it. I'm, I've tried. I've put in fab bids just about every week. Uh, I've had real. It seems like the guys I was patient with didn't pan out. The guys I, I wasn't patient with, I should have been patient with. Um, it's just one of those things. Matt, Matt Carpenter, I've been unfailingly patient with. I think every time we talk on the show, I say something nice about Matt Carpenter. And he says the other day that his shoulder's been hurting him all year. It's like, okay, well, now at least I, now I know. I, I mean, he's a human being, and you know, I hope he's healthy next year. I'll probably draft him again. But uh, what, what's worse than hearing in September that the player who's been letting you down all year? Oh yeah, I've been hurt all year. 
Yeah, up until the uh, my left leg fell off, I was doing fine. Uh, you're you're in the league with Jeff Zimmerman, right? Have you ever played in a league where a guy, especially in an experts league, where a guy ran away with the league the way uh, Jeff Zimmerman is running away with the tout mixed? It's happened before. I think a couple of years ago, maybe Derek Van Riper might have done that. Um, yeah, good for Jeff. He's an excellent player. Um, I, I, I could say that about anybody who's who's winning a tout wars league. I mean, you know, the quality of play is very high, but. I tip my cap to Jeff. He's had a great year. A lot of things have gone right. You know, you need, again, just as I think you need some bad luck and some poor decisions to come in last, you certainly need some good luck and some good decisions to, to be in first or to be in first to the level that Jeff is. Um, you know, he's a good player, but, you know, it doesn't mean I, I look at that room, I see 15 people who I really think could win. I think everybody's a good player. Everybody's been playing for a long time. And, um, I don't know what the takeaway is from from Jeff dominating the league. I know he's good, but that doesn't mean Ron Chandler isn't good. It doesn't mean that you know, Fred Zinke's a terrific player. We all know. I mean, there's just so much talent in that room that uh, I don't know if there's a takeaway year to year. I think there is a takeaway, Scott, and it's this. When you get into a room full of really good players, uh, more and more of it is about luck and less and less of it is about design. And I'm not disparaging Tout Wars or Labor or any of these experts leagues. I just think that's a fact. I mean, if you're in a contest, if you're playing chess in a room full of guys who don't play chess very much and you do, you're going to dominate. I mean, if you're Gary Kasparov and you're playing in a room full of Tout Wars guys, chances are you're going to win the tournament, right? But if you're Gary Kasparov and you're playing in a room full of Boris Spassky's and Bobby Fisher's and, you know, Watson the Computer or Deep Blue or whatever it is, then you're going to struggle a little bit more and then certainly luck is going to enter into it a little more than it would otherwise. And I I guess that's kind of the paradox of getting into better quality leagues is that you think it's going to be more about expertise and information and, and skill, but in a sort of uh, uh, weird way, it ends up being less about that. I mean, what Ron Chandler used to say, Ron, I'm sorry, uh, this is actually Gene McCaffrey's quote. He'd say, show me a really good strategy and I'll show you somebody in first and somebody in last using that strategy. And I think that's a great way to look at it. Well, of course, your main uh, connection to fantasy sports for our listeners is uh, at Yahoo Sports, where you ha- have a regular column in the Roto Arcade. And in your column at Yahoo Sports, I know pretty much a lot of fantasy football these days, but you're still looking at baseball a little bit. And you offered five themes for the last month of the season. And the first was, and I quote, just showing up has major value now. What did you mean by that, Scott? Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's September. We just had the first game of the NFL season. We know fantasy football is a big chunk of the fantasy marketplace. And so people in your league who are not competing or are just distracted because they went back to school, they're distracted by their football teams or they're distracted by whatever life is throwing at them, change of season. Baseball's a grind. Yeah, It's a six-month season. We have a month at least of preparation time. And then there's the playoffs. So, I mean, you know, baseball is in our minds eight months a year. If you throw in first pitch Arizona, that's nine months a year. And then hot stove, that's ten months a year. I mean, really, you know, it, it, it's, there's so much going on with baseball. It's, it's such an everyday presence in our lives that I can understand somebody who might say in September, I'm not saying this is right, and I always play to the end, and, and I, I, I implore people to do that for different reasons. It, it's good for the league, and, and, you know, you can always make up ground and feel good about your season or learn something going forward, which we're going to talk about later. But the fact of the matter is people have dynamic lives and people have other things going on in their life. And for a lot of people trying to move up from ninth to eighth to seventh in September isn't worth it. So what happens is, and it shocks me every year, even though I know this is true, it shocks me every year 
that I'll go to the waiver wire in some of my leagues, and I'll be like, oh, my God, this guy wasn't picked up three weeks ago? How did I miss that? And it's because you just have less engagement. Everybody's trying at the beginning of the season, and for different reasons, whether it's fatigue or it's frustration or there's just something new and shiny to do, a lot of people just don't try as hard in September. It's just a fact of life. So if, you, if you're there just doing your regular diligence and your regular maintenance, I think you'd be surprised. You might be out of fab money. Maybe you have to make zero bids, or maybe you have to deal with first come, first serve after a waiver period runs. I'm always shocked at how much is left. And again, because a decent chunk of every room has gone somewhere else. I think you're right about that, and I believe it applies in experts leagues just as, as as much as in other leagues. Maybe a little less because experts leagues have a certain amount of pride on the line, but uh, I can tell you, having been in some dire situations in tout over the years, it I try to keep going, but man, it gets tough sometimes when you're sitting there in 12th spot and there's no way you're going to catch 11th and there's no way the guy in 13th is going to catch you and you can work your behind off and nothing's going to happen from it. And I think those are the times that kind of test your character a little bit and prepare you for doing well uh, when you are in a position to really make some gains. And one great thing that Tout Wars does, I mean, they do a lot of things great, but one specific thing is they haven't sent, and I'm going to feel the brunt of this next year, is they have incentives based on where you finish in the standings and how it affects your future fab allowance, and I'm going to get crushed by that because my team is so bad. Um, my hometown league, uh, my quote-unquote hometown league, which I like to name drop here because I know a lot of guys listen, uh, Chelmsford, Massachusetts is where we all grow up. Grew up. No, none of us are there now, but the way that league works, it's a keeper league, it's a draft, and next year's draft order by order of finish is 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, uh, 4, 12, 3, 13, 14, 1, something like that. Basically, the first person out of the money will pick first, and the person who comes in last will pick second to last. And what we do is the, the bottom three or four teams, if you were to move up even one spot in the standings, you move up two spots in the draft order the way we stagger it. And so it means that if you want to – this is a keeper league. So if you want to trade for future seasons, you want to get rid of all your non your, – your expiring contract stars and everything, you can do that but you might come in last. You might pick second to last the next season. There's an opportunity cost there. And even if you're quote unquote out of it, I mean, you can look at the teams in your neighborhood and if you pass a team or two in September, you're going to significantly improve your draft position for the following season. So we give like tout wars, you know, everybody's got something to play for, not just pride, but we're applying it to future seasons in my hometown league. We're figuring out the draft order based on your order of standing. So we're giving you a carrot. And so you can't just tank without repercussion. I mean, your teams in real life and real sports will tank, but they have to deal with the PR hit. They have to deal with the Philadelphia 76ers tanked, but they have to deal with being a lousy team for a couple of years. What does it do to your fan base? What does it do to morale? What does it do to your brand? And maybe it's worth it. You know, now they have some talent, maybe worth it. I mean, we saw the Astros weren't good for a long time. Now they have a juggernaut and man, what a fun team that is. But I like leagues, even if it's a seasonal league, it's, it's not a keeper league. Like, Tout Wars is not a keeper league. I like the fact, and even though I'm coming in last and I'm going to feel it next year, I like the fact that there's something, and I, I don't need it. I'm going to try anyway. But I like the fact that we have an incentive. We have something in place that at least gives people that extra push that you're still playing for something. Yeah, I've been asked over the years uh, when I see people or they write into the show or they write in uh, on the comment boards at BaseballHQ.com, what can I do to improve my league? And I always say the number one thing you can do is go to on-base percentage rather than batting average, but the next thing is do whatever you can to keep people competitive late in the year. 
because it not only uh, encourages them to be better players when the chips are down later on, but it, it's also, I think, good for overall league morale. I mean, if, if you can't compete for first place, but you're in a good dogfight with two guys who are really trying and you're sixth, seventh, eighth, and you want to be sixth and you don't want to be eighth in that little mini race, or maybe you've put a couple of bucks on it, something like that. If there's incentives to keep going, I totally agree with you. I think that's a great thing. You also advised, Scott, in that column to treat streaming possibilities the way the gangsters used the burner cell phones in The Wire. One of my favorite shows, by the way. I just rewatched it from start to finish. What did you mean by uh, streaming like you're using a burner? Yeah, you know, just, just pick up that phone, use it, and throw it away. I mean, sure, it can be one start, two starts. Any pitcher who has a good matchup is favored, is up against uh, a weak opponent. And remember, too, some of these teams, you know, they're going to be shuttling through September call-ups. It's a great time to stream because some of the non-contenders are going to be putting out lineups that maybe aren't anywhere near as strong. That's what we see early in the year. It's, it's ERA generally dips in September, and I think there's a lot of logical reasons for that. So I, I'm just, if somebody can help me for one start, I'm fine with it. I mean, again, sometimes they become temp to perm guys. You know, Doug Fister became one of those guys that you know he he temporary uh, assignment. Uh, at first, but then he, he found a way permanently on my staff. But normally you would you would be thinking, okay, I'm making a pitching pickup. Is there a long-term future here? Is this guy somebody who I can see having an extended role on my team now? If I see one favorable start, I'm using – I may look silly by the time this podcast comes out, but I'm using Matt Moore tonight uh, against the uh, White Sox. I'll, I'll be at the White Sox hit lefties pretty well. Moore's overall numbers are horrible. He's pitched better of late. Uh, the White Sox at least are one of the weaker teams in baseball. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to kick the tires on him for one start. I'll, I'll drop him. Uh, there's nothing he can do probably to stay on my roster. But just because I see one favorable matchup, albeit he's going up against Giolito, who's been great for the White Sox. What a great pickup he was. There's another guy, too, right? Giolito, when he when he came up, I mean, he wasn't pitching that great in AAA. And I, I know he was obviously a Ballyhoo prospect a couple of years ago. But you know, if, you, if you tried him, I mean, look how good he's been for like three or four starts. The point is the point is this. If I see one soft landing spot for a pitcher, if I see somebody's going to be favored against a weak opponent, you're not thinking long-term here. Uh, it also, this comes into play with a lot of other things, too. If anybody gets dinged up now, I'll cut somebody in a second. I don't care who it is. I mean, a lot of times teams are out of contention. They're going to rest their young players, or they're going to rest anybody who's dinged up. And then we see the teams that have already qualified for the playoffs, like the Dodgers and the Astros. I mean, they're essentially in the playoffs already. They're not going to take any chances with their hurt guys because they need them ready for October. So uh, you have a much more just you put to put a fine point on it. You, you just have a much more specific and right now you know satisfy me on demand strategy in September than you would when you're thinking long term in April, May, and June. Also in that column, you suggest that a shrewd fantasy baseball player should be ready to, and I quote here, decipher the motivation. Whose motivation do you mean, and how can the fantasy player exploit it? Yeah, I kind of teased it a little bit in the in the previous answer. Just what is the team doing? The Astros and Dodgers are getting ready for October, so they may not press their main guys, especially if they're a little bit dinged up or tired or fatigued or whatever. A losing team, a rebuilding team, maybe playing younger players, maybe shuttling guys, trying different things. The safest thing you can do, and I know this isn't going to always perfectly line up, but the safest thing you can do in September is to invest on players on teams that need to win because at least you know they're going to put their best foot forward and they're going to play their theoretical best guys where 
the the Astros and Dodgers might not do it. You know, every building team like the White Sox might just be in audition mode. They just want to see somebody play. He's not necessarily the right guy. So ask yourself, what is the team's objective? What is the team trying to do? What is the, what is the playing time? How Does it make sense for this player to be playing all the time in, in September? Because where is this team going? What are they building for? This is always a part of fantasy to begin with. But again, I think it's a little bit more heightened in September. A little while back at Roto Arcade at Yahoo Sports, you wrote about the Phillies starter Aaron Nola. What was your angle? Yeah, you know, I couldn't get the timing right on Nola. I really liked him last year. A first-round pick, uh, ground ball pitcher, excellent command of three pitches. And then he hurt his elbow or his shoulder. I, I, I should forget which it was, and he just couldn't get anybody out in the second half of the year. And he started really poorly this year, and I thought, Okay, maybe he's not healthy. Maybe I just got to kind of write this guy off. I'm sure I told some people who asked me questions on Nola that I didn't have any faith in him. And lo and behold, he's healthy again. Uh, still getting those great ground balls. Still has those three pitches. Really fun to watch, too. He works quickly. You know, he's got an equanimity to him that I really like. And when things bad bad things happen to him, he doesn't seem to get swayed by that or he doesn't unravel from that. Which I think it's, a, it's an anecdotal thing, but I do think it's an important part of being a pitcher. And it kind of hit me. You know, he reminds me a little bit of Adam Wainwright. He's not quite as big as Wainwright. I mean, Wainwright's like, what, 6'7", I want to say. Renault is like 6'2", or so. But the pitch repertoire is similar. I think the, the style of pitching is similar. They're both ground ball pitchers. They both are good strikeout pitchers, but they're not through the roof with strikeouts. They're both around the plate. They can throw that curveball for a strike just about any time. And he's just one of my favorite pitchers to watch. I the, the kind of rule of, of fantasy is that unless it's like Scherzer or Kershaw, you don't want to watch them because anybody can blow up on you. But when I need something to relax, I mean, some people will have a cocktail. Some people will put some jazz on. I put on some Aaron Nola. He, again, works quickly. Everything's around the plate. He throws three pitches. Usually when they make contact against them, it's not hard contact. It's something very relaxing about watching him pitch. And I think he's finally you know, being healthy. He's always had the ability. I think he's blossomed into a star and somebody who I will – target in my 2018 drafts and we'll have a few more of those in a minute uh, that column also favorably mentioned colton wong of st louis even though you acknowledge in the column that the cardinals have pretty much been jerking him around all year where is the edge with colton wong given the way the cardinals treat him i want him on another team uh, Matheny drives me crazy they got you know him jeff banisters like this and the way banisters handled delano de shields who is trying to have a breakout year, and the, the Rangers keep fighting him. It's like, oh no, he's he's won for his last eleven. He might need a time. You might need a time on the bench now with with Beltre Hurt. It looks like the Shields has clear playing time because they've moved Gallo to third. But there's another guy, Gallo, and they, they really didn't handle him that well either. But I'm hoping Wong gets traded. Remember, they they he was a second baseman who was perfectly fine in second. They tried to make him an outfielder. Um, he gets in any kind of a mini slump, and they bench him. Matheny's just seems obsessed with whoever's hitting the last four or five days. Wong still, I still think Wong has a profile where he can hit for at least an acceptable average, if not a plus average. He's got some power. He can run. He's still at a, a young age where development is possible. I think he just needs to go to a team that says, look, you're our guy. You're our second baseman. Or, or even you're our you know, center fielder if you want to go that route. Just give him a, a gig. Tell him it's his. Tell him that we're not going to bench you if you, if you have a bad week. You know, we're not going to bench you if you go for five with four strikeouts. Having a clear head and knowing that you're not pressing for your job every at bat, I think that has a lot to do with players developing. And although the Cardinals have been really good a lot of times with veterans that they bring in or 
choices they make from other organizations, I don't think they always necessarily get the best out of their offensive hitting prospects. I, I certainly think that they've played it wrong with Wong, and I'm just begging that he goes somewhere else. You said something there that I find really interesting. Uh, last time I spoke with Jeff Zimmerman, and I've talked about this with other of my guest experts here at F- uh, Baseball HQ Radio, and that is the importance of organizations, the way that teams are managed. And usually when we're talking about that, it's about player development, who drafts well, who who uh, develops players well. But in a way, that how teams treat their players at the major league level is something that we can focus on and you look at a guy like Wong and you look at how he's handled by Mike Matheny and there have been other players in other organizations who get jerked around that way. Minnesota was just notorious for the way that they dealt with Byron Buxton and some of their other prospects before him and uh, I wonder do you do you think it's worthwhile for us to look at St. Louis and say because Mike Matheny is going to never give a guy a chance to play through a slump or is too seldom going to allow that to happen, maybe I'm just going to knock all the Cardinals down a little bit of a peg here. And and if it comes down to a choice between uh, a a Cardinals player and and a player on a more enlightened organization, maybe I'm just going to give that little bit of a thumbs up to the other guy. I could see it as a tiebreaker. We've known some managers who seem to favor veterans, favor players they know but but then sometimes all it takes is one player to change all that i mean i think dusty baker was a manager who we thought of as a veteran favoring manager and then you know last year trey turner comes up and was such a force of nature that what could they do i mean the guy was playing out of his mind so even baker saw the light on that but i think i think it's it's worth considering as a low-end tiebreaker i would never make it a primary consideration but we have to the bottom line is we have to you know, watch the detectives, as Elvis Costello would say. We have to manage the managers. We have to observe the organizations and try to get a sense of what is the thought here. Is this a team that would, you know, some teams want an established closer. Other teams would go to a younger pitcher as a closer. You know, some teams are fine if a player can't play defense if he hits. Other teams put a premium on defense and you know, they'll live with an offensive gap. We we have to always try to think, again, I talked about deciphering the motivation. I mean, that. That goes for an organizational sense as well any time of the year. Just does a team envision somebody in a certain role or does the team want to be young in a certain position or does the team have a payroll motivation? I mean, these are all factors that go into how we feel about certain managers, certain teams, certain organizations. And, you know, back to what you said about the Cardinals. I mean, I'll consider it. I'll consider Matheny and their handling of Wong and maybe their recent track record. I, it will not be one of my primary considerations, but I think we're foolish if we don't consider everything at our disposal. And so the tricky thing is we're not in the building. I mean, I don't know Mike Matheny. I don't know anybody on the Cardinals. Although I used to know Ron Chandler when he worked for the Cardinals, and that was pretty cool. It's really cool, actually. But, um, you know, I don't know these guys, so I, I don't want to go too far with it. Um, there are a couple of teams where I may know a beat writer here or a beat writer there. So, you know, there's a couple of teams maybe I, I get a tidbit here or there, but for the most part, I'm an outsider, and I don't want to go too far thinking that I know the ins and outs of a team when I'm really just viewing it from the outside. I agree with you, and I think the the issue largely is how good are the rest of the guys in your league because the better that your competition is, the more likely it is that marginal gains and all the gains are going to be at the margins, and that's where things like how well does the manager manage his roster, those kind of things. Uh, it may not be the hugest thing in the world, but everybody else has all the information you do other than that. Maybe that's where the marginal gains are made. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt. 
with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And uh, Scott, uh, some second-half performances have been really unusual this year, as they are every year. And by second half, I mean post-All-Star. It's not really the second half. It's kind of like the second seven-sixteenths or something like that. I'm not exactly sure what the ratio is. But let's start with a general question. How much do you believe in the idea that there's such a thing as a second-half player? His production is reliably or projectably better or worse in the second half every time out than it is in the first half every time out? Very rarely do I apply those types of things. Um, I need to have, first of all, but by the time you have a track record that you feel like you can rely on, and maybe the thing isn't even a factor anymore, I, I used to believe a, there are a handful of players who used to reliably get off to poor starts. I think Mark Teixeira is one of those guys who just never hit in, in April. And so I would always factor that away. But then at the end of the day, it's like he's Mark Teixeira. It's not like I have a first baseman on my bench who's anywhere near as good as him. So you just end up riding it out and, and he's hitting 192 on May 1st and you, and you live with it and, and you hope that the better numbers are going to come. I think it's intuitively um, logical that catchers would maybe break down the second half if they've been used a lot. I mean, it's, man, I remember catching as a kid. I, I played just about every position in sports, and it means I caught at one point. Now, we talked before the show about hockey. I was a goalie one season, and I think everybody should try to play different positions, but I wouldn't want to catch for my whole life. It's such a grind. I think about what Pudge Rodriguez went through catching in the Arlington Heat. You know, they're, they're building a new stadium, I guess, or they're going to in Texas because the games are so oppressively hot. I went to a game in August. It was just disgusting a couple of years ago. It was just so hot. All you do is sweat the whole time. I don't know how Pudge ever got through that, but so I think a catcher's maybe wearing down uh, a pitcher. You know, sometimes um, Jason Hamill had a reliable kind of track record of he would always pitch poorly in the second half, and just maybe he just didn't have the stamina or the body type that could handle six months of pitching. So in some cases, I'll take it as an actionable item for the most part. I think most players just, you know, they're going to have some good months and bad months, and it can be attributable to so many different things. They can get mechanically out of whack. There can be a personal problem. There can be, you know, they, could, they could correct something. Maybe they switch to a lighter bat. Maybe their eyesight get fixed. I, I mean, it could be so many different things, and a lot of times we don't know. One thing we always want to do is attribute. We, we see something happening. You know, Carlos Gonzalez is having a horrible year, and we want to know why. Is it, again, is it a physical thing? Is his shoulder hurt? Is, it, is his eyes a problem? You know, is he having a problem at home? Does he not get along with the manager? I, you know, maybe he's just getting old. Maybe his bat's just slowing down. Maybe... Teams have found a certain pitch he doesn't handle. I, I don't have a good answer on Gonzalez. It's frustrating to not have one uh, in September. I know he homered last night. But we want to have attribution and reasons for things, and, and sometimes we have to accept that we're not going to have reasons. And also, there's, a, there's an expression I have that if you stare at the clouds long enough, you'll see patterns. You'll think, oh, my God, that cloud looks just like the state of Ohio. Or, oh, my God, the last time I saw this sky, you know, somebody threw a no-hitter. There's going to be a no-hitter tonight. I mean, I, you want to be careful with that. Uh, just because we see something that's a pattern does not mean that something specific caused that pattern. I mean, there's just so much randomness in life and so much randomness in sports and so much randomness in baseball that I tend to, unless I have, I feel like I have a really good concrete handle on something, just because I see a pattern, I, I'm less likely to necessarily put some importance or predictive value in that pattern unless I can get to a second or third level where I, I feel like I'm on a handle with something. Yeah, I tend to agree with you about all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but still, we see players who have real big second halves, especially uh, uh, younger players, and we see older players who have poor second halves. How much do you think it's worthwhile or 
justifiable to extend that on into the next season. We got some 2017 players we're going to ask you about in a second who are having great second halves. Does this should this raise their stock for next year, or should we consider to look at the whole picture and uh, just ignore the fact that uh, they closed strong or closed weak? Well, to be fair, I mean, we talked about Aaron Nola a few minutes ago, and I was singing a song, you know, composing a sonnet for Aaron Nola because it, you think, well, I've always liked him. He's always had a pedigree, so here it comes. When when a young player starts to play well, a, a possible explanation is that he's growing. He's His skills are developing. He's coming into his own. He's figuring out what works and what doesn't work, how to handle uh, being a professional baseball player, how to handle the grind of it. So... I think it's most exciting, and again, it doesn't mean that these things are always going to be right, but it's exciting when a young player, especially a young player that we've always tabbed as having ability, as having skills, as having a tangible upside, when they start to play well, it's very, very tempting to think, okay, he's developing. This is what we expected. We, you know, Aaron Nola was a first-round pick. Aaron Nola was the top prospect. He's starting to pitch well, so I, I wouldn't be human if I didn't think that, okay, this is the development in, in the flesh. and. So I, when young players start to play well, and you want, again, you want to look, you always want to look at what's different. You know, is his pitch selection different? Is his swing plane different? Is his stance different? You know, you, and, and not that these things, correlation will not always be causation, and we don't always know. Things can happen for all these different reasons that we don't know, and, and we won't always have a correct attribution. And, and sometimes players can make very minor changes that they don't talk about. They don't want to give away a competitive advantage, or maybe we're not trained enough to see it. Um, I, I, it blows my mind how smart the baseball writers and the baseball followers are these days. And you'll go on a site like Fangraphs, and somebody will break down somebody's swing and say, look, this is what he's doing different from two years ago. And I'll admit, sometimes I watch those videos and I can't even see the difference. I mean, that's how subtle it is. And I, I have to accept that even though I'm a smart guy who's watched a lot of baseball, as Joe Sheehan would say, and he's as smart as anybody, I am not a scout. I'm, I'm not a scout either. But I guess I, a long, long-winded answer, but... I can't help it. I'm human. When young players that we expected something good to happen eventually start to play well, you start thinking maybe this is the growth, maybe this is the skill, maybe this is the development of something that we've been waiting for all along. And I imagine much the same is true of an older player who has a bad second half. Now, if I'm hearing you right, that the the key is to see that kind of thing and then look for the causes of it rather than to accept it as a cause that's going to have an effect that carries on into into subsequent performance. Uh, so let's look at some of the overperformers among hitters in this year's second half, and uh, we're not going to really try to figure out too much about whether or not it's a, a portent for, for the future, but Cubs catcher Wilson Contreras has only 100 plate appearances since the break but he's been among the elite sluggers in the league, 700 for a slugging percentage, a 1080 OPS, and home runs. He's been hitting them in the second half at a pace of 60 homers per 600 plate appearances. That's more or less a full season. I don't think anybody expects that Wilson Contreras is going to be Roger Maris next year, but where do you think we have to set his power ceiling given what he's shown us in this 100 plate appearances in this half? You know what I think is fascinating? I don't know if 100 plate appearances is enough to really take anything from this, but he was pulling the ball a lot more in the first half, and he's using the ball, the whole ballpark a lot more in the second half. And Again, 100 plate appearances, I, I don't know if that's enough to take something from that, but I always looked at that as, I, I've never looked at that as a bad thing for a hitter. When, when he's going the other way with pitches, he's not trying to jerk everything out of the park. Obviously, he plays in a great lineup. He plays in a good... Hitters Park, he's good enough to carry the position defensively. 
I'm bullish on Contreras, other than I just think everybody's going to be bullish on him. I think he's going to cost a lot next year, but I like what I've seen. I, I believe what we're seeing in the second half is this is one of those cases where, yeah, young talent, developing, growing, and I expect, I would prorate that into his 2018 price. Another National League catcher getting great results in the second half is Cameron Rupp of the Phillies. Just over 100 plate appearances again. He's got eight home runs. That would be around 50 for a full season. That would be uh, pretty good if he manages to repeat it. I don't think he will, but he's because he's also striking out more than a third of his plate appearances, only batting around 230. This all hollers be careful to me. Uh, am I wrong? No, I don't think you are. Um, granted, it's a swing for the fences. We don't care if you strike out society now. I mean, the game has has really shifted to that, and I don't think it's altogether the greatest thing in the world either. I, I kind of miss. I, I don't. I don't want to watch a game where nobody ever hits the home run. But I, you know, I feel like a, a rally of two or three hits was something that used to be fun too, and I don't think we see a lot of it anymore. But you know, keep in mind, his slugging percentage has gone down this year. OBP still just over three hundred. Uh, you know. I don't know. I, th- I think what we've seen, like last year, is probably the high end of him that maybe he'll hit in the 250s with the occasional home run. If I, I, Cameron Rupp were, I, mean, I know it's not unusual for catchers to develop late in their careers, but if Cameron Rupp were going to be something special, I think we would have seen it by now. I, I think last year's stat line is a good place to place your bid. I mean, he's a career 235 hitter. He'll, he'll probably be around, I think, 15, 16 home runs again last uh, next year. I, I mean, you know, second catcher, fine. Uh, mixed league, we only start one. I, I've actually used him in that team I talked about that that's trying to, to win, that, that's been in the middle of the pack all year. I've kicked the tires on Rupp here and there, used him on a Monday or a Thursday when I needed a catcher fill. But he's just in the bucket with a bunch of other guys. You know, one, one month Mike Zanino hits like crazy. The next month, you know, he strikes out 100 times and, you know, gets five hits. You know, Cameron Rupp, to me, is just one of several kind of anonymous, faceless, similar-profiled catchers. Staying with the Phillies, I talked uh, earlier with Harold Nichols about Phillies first baseman Reese Hoskins. Real big story in the second half. He's got a 1,200 OPS. He's on pace for a 72 home run season. Again, nobody's expecting Barry Bonds out of Reese Hoskins, but how enthusiastic are you going to be about Reese Hoskins when next year's bidding rolls around? Um, I'm looking forward to hearing. I'm going to go back and, and listen to what Nick had to say, who's, who's terrific on the NLB, one of my favorites to listen to. Here's what I love about Hoskins. His walk to strikeout rate in the minors and with the Phillies this year is almost even, and and he's not striking out a lot. And, and you, it's impossible to not be a good hitter if you have that ratio. Uh, this guy understands the strike zone. He understands waiting for a pitch he can drive. He understands the, the nuance of an at bat. He seems like his approach is is that of a somebody's really coached him well somewhere. Or, he, or he's picked up, I don't know, maybe he does a lot of self-scouting or something, or he does a lot of video work, I don't know. This guy, it seems like he he's a young player who has like a 35-year-old approach at the plate. I remember Kevin McHale talked about the cycle of an athlete, where you come up when you're young, and you have all this boundless energy, but you don't really know what you're doing. And then you get older, and you get a little bit more skilled, and, and now you're really in a good groove. And then at the end of your career, you know all the angles, but your body can't necessarily do what you want to do anymore. I feel like Hoskins has the advantage of being a young player, but seems to have the wisdom. Again, this walk strikeout rate of of a, of a guy who's a power hitter is just so rare that we see it. I can't imagine this isn't real. I mean, you don't want to bet on the high end of his range because he's playing out of his mind. I mean, it's like a percentage of 704 on base over 400, but I would be flabbergasted if he pumpkined next year, if he if he totally fell off the map. I, I just 
there's too much. The approach at the plate is too reflective of somebody who's already figured a lot out. Well, speaking of that, uh, Eugenio Suarez of the Reds has a 20% strikeout rate, 16% walk, so he's you know, flirting around with that one-to-one ratio, which we like to see, and he has an OPS over 1,000, but his home runs per 600 pace only around 36. Do you think we should be able to expect an even better home run performance next year given the fact that he plays in that park and he seems to have a lot of these same skills that Reese Hoskins has? Definitely buying. Uh, walks up, strikeouts down, line drives up. I mean, that's what do we want? He's being more selective. He's making better contact and, and a higher quality of contact. Everything to me, I, and Suarez is a guy I was slow to adopt on, and I, I didn't have a lot of Suarez last year or this year. I, I wonder if maybe I have a blind spot on the Reds. Maybe there's some reason I'm not giving them enough attention. I'm just like, okay, Votto's great, and let's move along. But um, I wish I had him. I think he's a legitimate player, and I, so many of the things that we would like to see a player improve in, he's improving in. Where do we stack Luis Valbuena next season? I really liked him coming into the year. I had him on my target list. I touted him to some of my friends. He got hurt, of course, all the first half. Now he's back, and he's blistering the ball to a 920-ish OPS. He's on a 54 home run pace had he played for a full 600 plate appearances. Again, I caution. I'm not saying he's a 50 home run guy, but where is he? (laughs) He's just going to strike out so much. I mean, he's still hitting 199. I, I know we live in an era where that's acceptable in, in, the, in the degree that it didn't chase Gallo out of a job. It didn't chase Schwarber out of a job, although he went to the minors briefly. But, you know, a 229 career hitter, um, the pop's nice. I don't think the Angels are necessarily married to him. He's, not, he's at a point in his career where he's not running at all anymore. He makes me nervous. I feel like I can find power somewhere else. I think you have to accept some downside with with the average and and you doesn't run he, he's at a point in his career where you know the team isn't going to make a long term commitment to him he'll be thirty two next year he he makes I, I get it you know AL only um, you know type of fodder or, you know, a really deep league we're looking for a bench spot okay but I would not view Val Buena proactively for two thousand eighteen. Just before we move on, uh, there are four players in Major League Baseball this year who have more walks than strikeouts or the same number of walks as strikeouts. Uh, take a guess on trying to name any any number of the four. Avado would be the first guy I'd think of. Right. Uh, is Matt Carpenter on that list? Tenth. He's at 119, so really good. Yeah, Carpenter's really good. Um, Mookie Betts? Mookie Betts is number four. Way to go. Okay, can I quit while I'm ahead? Yeah, you can quit while you're ahead. The other two are Justin Turner and Anthony Rizzo, and they're uh, they're uh, all terrific hitters. And when you look down this list of guys who are walking a lot and not striking out as much, or at least walking nearly as much as they strike out, every name on the list is a guy you wouldn't mind having on your team. I think for the most part, it's uh, it's a really good way to to look at guys. We call it I ratio at baseballhq.com. We've been using it for years, so a little plug there. Uh, finally, the lights all seem to be going on at once for the Twins' Byron Buxton in the second half. 10.59 or so on the OPS, nearly a 40-40 pace in home runs and steals if he had got a full season. Even if this isn't the long-awaited breakout, how likely do you think Buxton will be overbid or overdrafted next year is that going to be an issue yeah i could see him being overdrafted only because i mean he wasn't just a prospect he was the prospect i mean at one point he was the consensus number one prospect in baseball and we get excited about those guys we get excited about chris bryant we get excited about steven strasburg we get excited excited about byron buxton and you know he came up at a really young age 
he was up, he was down, he was batting ninth, he was striking out a ton, he went back to the minors and crushed it. He played really well, remember, at the end of last year, which got a lot of people excited about this year, and then it didn't start right away. Man, though, I mean, his batting average may always be, I think Gene McCaffrey was talking about him maybe, I mean, he could be, the low range of Buxton could be B.J. Upton, which, man, what a weird career Upton had. I mean, you know, a number, one number one, number one overall pick, great defender, power speed, um, got himself out a lot, swung at a lot of bad pitches. I see the similarities with Buxton. I'd like to think that Buxton is, is going to hit the higher range than Upton did. Although, to be fair with Upton, he was a good player for a long time. It's, it's, it's disappointing they didn't maybe hit his peak, but it's not like Upton was a, a colossal buster, you know, he used to hide his head in shame. I mean, he had some good seasons. And even just last year, he was pretty good for the Padres. And they get traded and then totally went to crap. But I like Buxton. I like his makeup. Um, I like the fact that he's still young, and we, we can imagine him getting better. I, I'd like to see him strike out less. He's, he's trimmed the strikeouts, but he's still 28% is, is too high of a strikeout rate. At least he's walking a little bit more. You want to see that get up to maybe 9 10 11%. You swing at good pitches. I the bottom line is, because Buxton's a quote-unquote fun pick, because we've been excited about him, because he was the number one prospect in baseball, because we've started to see production, because somebody in your league, own, when we get to the draft next year, you're going to be in a league with somebody who had Buxton the previous year, and it's going to have a warm fuzzy about how well Buxton played in the previous part of the year. And then maybe somebody who had him the year before thought, oh, I timed this wrong. Maybe I can get Buxton next year. I have kind of a saying with, with fantasy that the more fun something is to do, the less likely it is that it's plus EV, as the poker players would say. I have a feeling that Buxton, because he's going to be a fun pick next year, that means he's probably going to be a little bit overvalued. I'll just say this. I did a research study a few years ago for BaseballHQ.com in which I found out, uh, to my satisfaction, if nobody else's anyway, that the time to jump on a young player is, is the season after he achieves his 800th plate appearance. And uh, Byron Buxton this year is just going to pass through his 800th plate appearance. He's at, at about 850 right now. And I think uh, Byron Buxton... I think he could be terrific next year. I agree with you, though. I think he's highly likely to be overbid. And depending on your risk profile and how, what other guys you have on your roster, I think uh, that's going to have to be the deciding factor of whether you want to bid on Byron Buxton next year. But don't expect you're going to steal him for 8 bucks because I think it's going to be 20 plus. I love that experience angle. That, that's such a great point. You know, These guys need to come up, get their feet wet, figure out how professional baseball works and you know, the grind of it all. I, I think that's a great point. That, and you know, also, we love our post-type sleepers, too, right? I mean, with Buxton, it's, it's tough because a guy like Buxton is such a high-profile prospect that he's kind of a constant hype sleeper. I mean, people just don't write guys off like that. But they write off other prospects, you know, guys who are maybe further down the list. They don't perform well for a season or two, and we start thinking maybe they're overrated, maybe it's not going to happen. Um, the experience factor, I just want to underscore what a great point that is. Before we move on to first, uh, second-half pitchers, just out of curiosity, we had uh, some pretty amazing home run performances here. Aaron Judge, of course, Cody Bellinger mentioned Reese Hoskins in a shorter period, but also a couple of established players, Justin Smoke and Logan Morrison, especially Smoke, have really started banging home runs. Uh, I'm just curious, when you look ahead to 2018, out of those five guys, who would you put your money on as the most prolific home run hitter for 2018? The name that jumped out at me is, is Bellinger. Maybe it's because it's that swing. You fall in love with it. And that, Full disclosure, I think I have him on one of my teams, and I'm in a bunch of leagues, so that's not... I'm taking a loss on Cody Bellinger this year overall, but 
Uh, Morrison's the guy I trust the least. Uh, Bellinger would be the guy I trust the most. And I think Smoke's legitimate. I, I want to say this. I, he changes. We talk about guys who change their approach. I mean, he definitely changed his swing to go for home runs. He was a, a great example of a post-type guy who finally made it. And to be fair, every once in a while he'd have like a hot month, and I think, okay, here comes for Smoke, and then it, it wouldn't happen. But the series done it all year. I think Smoke is legitimate. Uh, Bellinger would be the guy I'd bet on the, the most emphatically, and Morrison would be the guy I'd be really worried that maybe he was a pumpkin. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And, Scott, let's look at some hitters who are 2017 underperformers in the second half. There's deservedly been lots of talk about Miguel Cabrera, who had a pedestrian first half at best, and he's really fallen off in the second half. A 600 OPS, including a sub-300 on-base percentage, which used to be his calling card. If you uh, pace him out for a full season of 600 uh, plate appearances, he'd hit 11 home runs. Again, something we just don't expect. Now, we know health has been an issue, and he's 30 years old plus. I know from experience that joint pain like Miguel Cabrera has doesn't tend to disappear when you get to the far side of 30 years old, which is quite far for me, by the way. Uh, At what price or draft round do you think Miguel Cabrera is going to be a reasonable bid in 2018? Yeah, turns 35 next April. Um, back to our friend Gene McCaffrey, he talks about inner circle Hall of Fame guys. I mean, they generally hold on, and they, they just don't lose it overnight. With the Cabrera, it's been injuries. Now, maybe we just have to accept that as the new normal. But I can see Cabrera as having an end game similar to Albert Pujols, where we have to totally back off on the idea of Pujols being the first-round MVP candidate, Pujols. But he was still a productive player. You got to the point where some people would walk away from him and say, well, wow, wow, Pujols hit 40 home runs this year, you know, a couple of years ago. I mean, that's the way I would look at Cabrera. I, I would not draft him proactively, but I think fourth, fifth round, sixth round, I'd be thinking a first ballot, no no doubt, walk-in Hall of Famer is not going to lose it overnight. I would give him the benefit of that in, in that pocket. and I think I'm going to have him somewhere next year. I think there's going to be enough people who have been burned on him Enough people who want you know the idea that they, you want to be a year early, not a year late, and I get that. But as again, what McCaffrey said, I mean, the rules are different for the elite of the elite. The, the walk-in Hall of Famers generally don't lose it overnight. I'm going to give Cabrera. I, I, I want him somewhere next year. That's I guess that's the way I'll frame it. Jose Bautista of the Blue Jays has scuffled all year and has declined even further in the second half. He's hitting 150. He's got an OPS barely at 550. And is this the beginning of the end for Jose Bautista, the middle of the end or the end of the end? I think it's the end of the end. A little later in his career. Um, remember, he was a late bloomer, too. Um, it's sad for me to see, too, because I've, I've always loved that guy. I love the way he rebuilt this swing. Now, I talked about how I think generally it's good if you use the whole ballpark. I mean, that's not Jose Batista. Jose Batista is, I. you throw me an inside pitch, I'm going to pull it. You throw me an outside pitch, I'm going to pull it. You throw me a pitch in the dirt, I'm going to pull it and try to hit out of the ballpark. And What's wrong with a bat flip? What's wrong with an aggressive swing? I've never had a problem with that. But a little later in his career, um, he's had a lot of physical problems. I, I don't know. I, for, I don't have a tangible, maybe a hard tangible reason with Batista other than he's a little bit older. And not quite to the elite level of, of hitter that a Cabrera was or a Pujols was. I, I think I'm out on Joey Bats. Staying with Bautista-related news, Rugnet Odor of Texas, who famously cold-cocked Bautista in a game, is taking it on the chin himself this year in the second half. That's the last thing he hit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> a batting average under the Mendoza line, on base under 240. 
He's got a 20% hit rate, a 200 BABIP. Is that a clue we should be looking more at his counting stats, which are still 30-15 per 600 PA, and assumed he'll just recover at least some batting average next year? Yeah, that's how I play it. Um, you know, losing, what, 50, 60 points in hit rate. Uh, quietly, whatever you make of the defensive metrics, he's actually had a much better defensive season this year, although he's a little bit on the minus on defense. But that's just an interesting little thing about the growth of a player. The Rangers haven't lost faith in him. They play him. Uh, he's not a high stolen base guy percentage-wise, but they let him run. Um, you know, They don't seem to care about batting average in Texas. You know, Gallo has stayed in the lineup. Odor has stayed in the lineup. I would bet on him. I, you know, we don't have... The power speed used to be the golden goose, and now we just don't have that many guys like that anymore. I mean, granted, Odor's got 14 stolen bases, and not like he has 40, but I, I'd like those 14 stolen bases. I think there's some batting average upside. Somebody's going to look at him. You know, he's hitting 213 right now. Somebody's going to look at him in your draft and say, oh, no, I can't take Odor. He's going to kill my average. Well, he hit 271 the previous season, so that's in his reasonable range of outcomes. I, I think he's a great guy to bet on next year. Cleveland outfielder Bradley Zimmer was really getting it done in the first half, but his performance f- has fallen off in the second, 600 OPS. Still got uh, 30 stolen bases per 600 in the, s- in the second half. That's good. But Cleveland has so many outfield options. How should we be looking at Bradley Zimmer for 2018? Yeah, the playing time you're worried about. Uh, strikeout rate of 30% is, is too high. You're on base, barely over 30%. Uh, he's not even slugging 40% or 400, I should say. I just feel Cleveland is a team built to win now, and if Zimmer can't decisively show that he has a spot on lockdown, and you know sometimes they're going to play Chisholm Hall, and they're going to, I think they're going to be a team that every year during the trade deadline looks to improve because they know they have a core of guys they can win with for the next four or five years. To me, I'm not convinced Zimmer is an everyday player. I think the Indians know it. I would be reluctant to throw anything optimistic at him next year. And finally, uh, Aaron Judge really came back to earth in the second half. He's batting under 180. He's on a 24-home run pace that seems positively childlike when we consider how he was smashing him in the first half. If you were drafting your 2018 team, say tomorrow, where would Aaron Judge be on your cheat sheets? I wouldn't want to use him in the first round, and I think somebody might talk themselves into that. I, I like him as a player in the sense that I, I think he's intelligent. I, I think he wants to be good. I think he handled the success very gradually and gracefully, and you know, and I think he's handled the decline the same way. But you can't be six foot seven and not have some holes in your swing. It just it doesn't make sense. And they're gonna have they have so many areas to pitch you, and they're gonna find areas that you can't necessarily handle, or they're gonna put it on you to make adjustments. Next year, I, I sense he's probably gonna hit maybe fifteen or twenty points lower. I still think he's just too much power to not hit thirty plus home runs, but. I'm not going to take him in the first round. I, I'd be open-minded to a second-round pick, but I have a feeling it's just, I mean, how can you be in the Yankees and be good and be underrated? It just almost never happens. So uh, maybe that sounds overly simplistic, but I think somebody's going to want in on Judge more next year than I will. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And, Scott, let's zoom over to the pitching mound, uh, second-half overperformers. How about James Paxton? Great second-half numbers. One walk per nine innings is fantastic. But how much shade is cast by the injury cloud? Yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, if, if we knew we had a full season of Paxton, we're talking about a Cy Young contender. We're, we're talking about, you know, a second-round pick, a third-round pick, but... He's at a point in his career. I mean, he's um, he's going to turn 29 
in November, maybe we just have to accept like some guys you just, you just can't put full seasons on them. You know, Str- Strasburg, you draft them and you hope for thirty starts. You know, if you get twenty five, you can't really feel that bad about it. That's kind of how I feel about Paxton. You, you know, you put twenty five starts in the books, put one hundred and seventy innings in the in the books, one hundred and eighty innings maybe, which is good. I mean, we'll take that. But I'm never going to price him as a full season pitcher. There's just too much history here. Luis Severino of New York, we talked about him. He's been very good for the full season and terrific in the second half. A 2.15 ERA, a whip right around one, a ton of Ks. Is there any reason that this guy can't be thought of in the second tier of starters behind Kershaw, Sale, Kluber, those guys? Man, I, the only thing that makes me a little nervous, and I am not a doctor, as well as I'm not a scout, I'm not a doctor, is he's throwing all those sliders. And his slider percentage is like a third of his pitch count and there's been differing. I, I don't know, and Patrick, you probably know better than I would. I, I don't know if we've definitively proven that the slider wrecks your elbow or wrecks your body or not. Some guys have thrown a million sliders and they've been fine. Some guys, you know, throw five of them and they're, they're on the DL. So I don't know what's predictive and what isn't there. That makes me a little bit nervous. But man, great stuff. You love to see the velocity ticked up this year, and uh, he hasn't had any problem pitching in that division or that park, and he's maintained his success all year. I, I think he's legitimate. I just hope, and then look. Every pitcher we're worried about staying healthy. I mean, I, I said it about Paxton, but to be fair, what pitcher are you not worried about? You know, from Kershaw's in unbelievable shape. He gets hurt a lot. You know, Scherzer on the DL this year. I mean, it's it's just hard to feel great about any pitcher staying healthy. But in the case of Severino, I think he's legitimate. I love that he's sustained the success all year, uh, despite being mostly a two-pitch pitcher. He doesn't throw the change all that much. But I think he's legitimate. I, I just hope that the slider usage won't catch up to him. Gio Gonzalez uh, had a great first half. All the experts said, okay, watch this. He's going to fall off the edge of the earth. Instead, he got even better, a 205 ERA, 098 whip in the second half. Not as young as some of these other guys, but how much are you willing to bet that Gio Gonzalez has turned the corner and joined, if not the elite, the near elite? I don't think anybody believes that. I I think the fact that he's continued to do it while everybody – I think everybody's come on your program and, and faded Gonzalez and told you to run away from him, and I think that's good process, bad result. Strikeouts down, home runs up. Uh, his suggested ERA is, is 3.87 if you go by FIP. It's over 4 if you go by XFIP, which I don't blame anybody who doesn't go by XFIP because I think there's some things in XFIP I don't completely trust, but this just screams out mirage. And also, it, it's at a guy, we're talking about somebody who's, who's into his 30s now. You know, He'll be 32 before next year. Um, it's it's got to be a fluke. I, I the, 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 here's the problem then. Now I think you're going to be in a smart room, and the whole room is going to say it's a fluke. And then it comes a point where, wow, am I getting Gio Gonzalez so cheaply that is it worth it anyway? Probably be on a good team. You think the Nationals will be good for a few years, but I don't know. There's, there's nothing about this that looks legitimate to me. I, I even though I think the price is probably going to be cheap, it's going to be one of those everybody's so afraid to be the sucker, so nobody will step up to the plate. That said, I'm, I'm not stepping up to the plate. I don't want Gio Gonzalez next year. I, I don't even really trust him now. I, I keep waiting for that seven- or eight-run game that never happens. How about Kyle Gibson of the Twins? He's got a strikeout rate over eight per nine in the second half. His walk rate is under two and a half. These are not great skills, but they're also not bad skills, and he's going to end this year with a poor overall line. Do you think Kyle Gibson could be a sneaky late-round grab in 2018? I think he's a fascinating guy because, again, Here's a guy who's playing well in the second half. And, and look, you look at his overall stats, his strikeout numbers are, are terrible. His strikeout, his dominance rate, you know, to use the HQ parlance, 
is so low that you would never even consider him. You're like, oh, he's just going to have to pitch to contact too much. I mean, you, you can't get lucky with guys like that. But maybe, and I haven't watched Gibson close enough to know if he's tweaked his repertoire or if he's doing something different specifically to get the strikeouts. I would think that's probably the case. I just haven't gone under the hood with him as close to some other guys. But I think he's the kind of sneaky guy that you're looking for where something's different. He went from pitching to contact to actually missing bats. He's now starting to strike out batters at a, at a rate where we can accept. He's young enough where an improvement, you know, a, a spike in performance is to be, you know, at least it's in play. It, it's reasonable that it could happen. This is the type of screen player I would look for. And I'm glad you brought him to my attention because honest, I'll be honest with you, I, I, for some reason he slipped off my radar. I think sometimes – you, you just get blinded by those overall numbers, and you and, and granted, who knows? Maybe you know, maybe it's just a fluke. He's just strung together some nice games, or it could be the quality of opposition, or it could be a lot of things. But because the strikeout rate has spiked as much as it has, I'm inclined to think that this is a great latent sleeper. And, and you know, there's not going to be he's not going to be in a magazine cover. This isn't Byron Buxton, where Buxton starts to play well and the whole world jumps up and down. There's no Kyle Gibson movement. You know, there's no, there's no website devoted to, to Kyle Gibson or anything like that. You know, this is happening so quietly in such a screened way, in such a subtle way that I, I think you know, it's so hard to, to envision sleepers now because there's just too many websites, there's too many smart people, there's too many people tweeting, there's too many people who want to be first on something. I think Gibson is a rare case where you can actually get a quote-unquote sleeper at a price that you'll like next year, and there's a reason to buy into some tangible upside. If you were in a snake draft and you needed a starter and it was your pick and you had your choice of Patrick Corbin, Marcus Stroman, Masahiro Tanaka, and Luke Weaver, all of whom are having good second halves, who would you take? You know, I think Stroman's probably the best pitcher, but I just hate the American League East. I, 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 maybe it's not quite as damaging as it used to be, but I'd look at you know Corbin, of course, in Arizona, uh, Weaver in St. Louis. Maybe just the fact that the, the pitching, the I, I like to, to walk downhill. I like to have the easier path of resistance when in doubt. You know, Tanaka makes me nervous with that park. I mean, just uh, granted, I, I like Severino 10 seconds ago, but I think I'll, I'm still trained to take the National League pitcher when I can. I, I know the difference between the leagues hasn't been as severe in recent years. And yet part of it is, you know, you, you just have to take Colorado out of the equation. You just don't want to throw your pitchers there, generally speaking. But I would lean towards Weaver because he's in the best environment. Again, switching over, Scott, let's look at some 2017 second-half underperformers on the mound, also known as my entire rotation. I had really high hopes for the A's' uh, Sean Manaya, and he looked okay in the first half, although he missed some time with uh, injury. His second half has been a stink bomb, 614 ERA, 173 whip, and he's not even striking out six uh, hitters per nine innings. Too many fly balls. I don't know. What do you think of Sean Manaya? He has to be hurt. Something has to be wrong. He, he's... We saw too much proof of a talented pitcher, and and here's another thing: when, when somebody, when a pitcher pitches this awful, um, when the numbers are this bad, I think you just have to throw them out. Some, something's wrong. He, maybe he shouldn't be pitching. If I were the A's, I'd, I'd be like, look, just go home, ice the elbow, you know, work out, work out on on things not related to pitching, and, and we'll we'll talk to you next summer, uh, next uh, spring. I mean, he can't be healthy. But I, I don't I don't think there's anything more than that. 
Also a bit of a fly ball pitcher, which you don't want to be in a year with a juiced baseball. Another guy in that same boat has had some great results in past, but pretty awful this year, especially in the second half. Marco Estrada of the Blue Jays, a 534 ERA, 147 whip. Way too many walks, way too many fly balls for this environment. Any hope Estrada gets back into form in 2018 to be worth looking at seriously? He's hurt a couple of my teams really bad. Uh, I know he was one of Gene's favorites. As we make this the Gene McCaffrey podcast as much as possible. What a what a great analyst he is. It used to be Estrada was the poster child of look, five ball pitchers aren't so bad. Look, you can work up in the strike zone, and maybe the game has changed, and Estrada is being exposed by it. That whether it's guys taking pitches, some of the pitches out, out of the strike zone they shouldn't try to hit, or they're those fly balls that were landing in gloves are now landing in the eighth row of the seats. I think we'd be foolish to not believe that there's something different with the baseball. I, I, I just can't believe that magically all these home runs have come out of nowhere. I mean, it, it's got it, the ball has to be different. It has to be juiced. I, I don't buy any explanation that runs contrary to that. And I think Estrada has been caught in the collateral damage. I think he was a player who was really a great value because there were reasons why people didn't trust him but he had a skill that survived in a different form of baseball. And right now that's not the baseball they play. So I was really patient. It's funny, you know, being patient is great when players come around and it's so frustrating when they don't, I was awfully patient with Estrada. I gave him a lot of time to figure it out and to fix it. And now I've just accepted that he's the wrong pitcher in the wrong kind of game right now. Also in the wrong park and the wrong division for a certain, uh, uh, in a certain way, would you be more interested in Marco Estrada if he were to sign in the offseason? He's a free agent somewhere in the American League West, maybe, where there's a lot less homerific ballparks? Yeah, sure. I'd love to see him in Seattle, Oakland, San Diego, although that Padres Park does not play the way it used to be. It's still a decent place to pitch, but it's not Death Valley anymore. But if I were Estrada, I'm not sure off the top of my head what his contract details are, but this is a great time for him to go somewhere else. And I, I hope I, I would be willing to throw a bucket to Estrada if he landed somewhere good. If he's still in Toronto, I'll let somebody else take the chance. Michael Fulmer of Detroit was Rookie of the Year material last year, really declined in this year's second half. ERA over five. He's not striking out six batters per nine innings either. How will you be handling your bidding on Michael Fulmer for 2018? I'm torn because I, being in Detroit, I, I watch him a lot. I mean, I, I try to watch everybody, but you know, even when I'm just in a bar or just hanging around town, you know, Tiger's game might be on, and I love watching pitch. I love the way he competes, but it's so hard to talk yourself into pitchers who don't strike out that many guys. And Fulmer, even at his peak, is just not a heavy strikeout guy. And how many pitchers on like that can we you know, take on our rosters? I until he comes up with a wipeout pitch or a new approach. I also wonder if he's worn down a little bit. I, I, I'm surprised they didn't proactively shelve him earlier than they did because the team's going nowhere. They've obviously dismantled it. Upton's gone. Verlander's gone. And that's the right thing. Um, you know, rest in peace, Mike, Mike Illich. He really wanted to win a title really badly. But once Illich passed on and this core got really old, this was a foundation they really needed to start over with. And they're doing the right thing by some of the trades they've made. But anyway, I would have I would have put Fulmer. I would have put him on ice a long time ago because he's one of your future guys, but just doesn't strike out enough batters. And until I see an approach change or I see a dominance in a pitch, maybe he needs to add a pitch, maybe he needs to scrap a pitch, maybe it's a refining a pitch, you're finding a way once he gets ahead of and counts to put batters away to get swings out of the strike zone, which he could be better at. I think you have to sit it out. It just It's a world of strikeouts, and he just doesn't strike enough people out. 
And finally, speaking of Cy Young's, uh, Dallas Keuchel of Houston has a 150 whip in the second half. His strikeout-to-walk ratio is under 2, and our standard these days should be more like 3 for an elite-level starter, even 2.5 or 2.6 for an average guy. This is uh, another guy falling on hard times. Where has Dallas Keuchel's stock gone in your valuation? Man, I'm, I'm torn here because I really like Keuchel. He's, he's smart. He is an unbelievable fielder. We talked about him at one of my previous spots, maybe last year, about some of the kind of sneaky things that he does that don't always get attention. You can't run on him. He fields his position very, very well. He induces a lot of soft contact. He induces a ton of ground balls. These are all great things. And even though he's not a quote-unquote strikeout pitcher, I mean, he's, he, he gets his 7.5 per nine this year, 7.2 for his career. Sometimes he's nudged that number over eight. A decent team behind him, which which helps. I and also that is not that park is not the bandbox that people want to make it out to be. I think it looks really small on TV, but I think it's actually. And Keuchel's been an unbelievable pitcher at home. Part of the problem with Keuchel is he hasn't been the same pitcher on the road all the time. But I'll give him an injury pass for what he did last year, and even for how it's mucked up his second half this year, because he does all those little things well and they incrementally add up. I still think he's a plus player. I'd like to have him some Keuchel shares next year. Well, Scott, as always, this has been a real treat. I could go on talking to you all day, and the way my wife's yelling at me to take care of the dog, she must think we are going to talk all day. So tell us uh, where listeners can keep up with Scott Pianowski. Oh, it's always fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Um, Twitter, uh, if you pick one of the 17 hours a day that I'm on Twitter, you're in luck. Scott underscore Pianowski. Uh, We mentioned the Roto Arcade blog, where I've been working at Yahoo Sports for the last nine years. I hope you check out I'm still trying to do some baseball and, and help you and, and help myself uh, in September, but there's a lot of football there. I'll, I'll rest assured that up front. And if you listen, if you enjoy talking uh, podcasts, um, it's mostly a football podcast, although we maybe do baseball next year. But Michael Salfino, another uh, alumni of the of the Patrick David podcast, um, him and I are doing a podcast called the Breakfast Table Pod. Uh, Breakfast underscore pod, I believe, is the Twitter account. So if uh, if I haven't put you to sleep with this conversation, you want to hear more of me talking about sports against give me mostly football this year, but we're talking about doing a baseball podcast next year. Michael Safino is terrific, by the way. Um, read, read everything he writes. He's very smart. Uh, a, a lot, the reasons why you like HQ with the numbers and getting granular with things, and Mike does all that stuff too. And, and I think if you like the stuff on this program, you would like his work. So I want to give a hearty endorsement of that. But Anyway, man, hey, it's great talking to you. I, I, you the readers, the, the listeners won't know it, but we, we probably talked for like 45 or 50 minutes before we even hit record on this thing. And, and that just speaks to you're, you're knowledgeable about so many different things. And, and I, I can't imagine a better person to have a beer with, uh, watch a game with, and then just try to figure it all out with than Patrick Davitt. So thanks for having me, man. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Scott. I really do appreciate it. To Scott Pianowski writes for Yahoo Sports, where you can follow his terrific work. Also on Twitter at, at Scott Pianowski, that's Scott with two T's, underscore, uh, piano, like the musical instrument, followed by WSKI, which is also the call letters of CBS Sports Radio 1240 in Montpelier, Vermont, up there in the Northeast, <laughs> the yep. official radio home of the Vermont Mountaineers of the New England College Baseball League. Coming up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute playing time, master notes, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. It's time in the show now when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow, a regular feature, American League Central analyst Mike Shears looks at the 2018 pitching outlook for that division 
In Facts and Flukes, Brian Rudd validates the performances of Cody Bellinger, Trevor Story, Ian Happ, and other players. And in the Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at pitchers who have surged from the first half to the second. An interesting follow-up to my talk with Scott Pianowski. And that's just a small sampling of all the great content at BaseballHQ.com all the time. And why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's now time for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Washington outfield prospect Victor Robles is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Now that the kids are back in school and MLB teams have expanded the rosters, most of the top prospects in the minors have either already been called up or are too young and their seasons are effectively over. One prospect who bucks that trend and is worth an aggressive fab bid is the Washington Nationals' Victor Robles. Robles, who was signed out of the Dominican Republic in 2013 for the bargain price of $225,000, was called up this week and with Bryce Harper still on the DL, could see significant action over the last month of the season. Robles is a legitimate five-tool prospect and ranked as the number three prospect in baseball in our midseason top 50 update. The toolsy and athletic Robles can do it all on the baseball field. He's a plus-plus runner who is a true center fielder with a cannon for an arm. At the plate, he has an advanced understanding of the strike zone and barrels the ball consistently. Robles is also a heady player and stands out for his hard-nosed style of play. On the year, Robles is hitting 300 with a 382 on on-base percentage and a 493 slugging percentage. He has 37 doubles, 8 triples, 10 home runs, and 27 stolen bases, and 430 at-bats between low and high A, and he did all of that as a 20-year-old. Long-term, Victor Robles has the potential to be an impact middle-of-the-order hitter who should continue to add power as he matures and fills out his lean 6-foot, 180-pound frame, and is definitely worth owning in all deep keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Victor Robles, J.P. Crawford, Walker Bueller, Luis Gohara, and every prospect and suspect who has been called up to the big leagues. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's playing time, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at some moves you can make now to set up your Keeper League teams for 2018. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield. As the season hits its final weeks, playing time is becoming very difficult to project in the short term. So our playing time tomorrow columns are shifting a little bit and looking ahead at things you can do now in your keeper leagues to best set you up for 2018, all while your league mates are checking week one scores in that other sport. Sam Grant, who does our NL Central playing time tomorrow column, notes an interesting decision that the Reds might have to make at third base. Eugenio Suarez has played himself into regular duty with a breakout season of a 273 batting average and 24 home runs. It's been skills supported too, especially in the second half, where Suarez has put up great power metrics with an excellent batting eye of 75% walks to strikeouts. If Suarez stays at third and on the Reds entirely, he would block one of the top prospects in the game in Nick Senzel. 
Senzel hit 340 with 10 home runs and just 209 double-A at-bats this season. He finished 14th on our mid-season prospect list, and that should only rise as some of the top prospects graduate from rookie status. Senzel could make a push to join the Reds early in 2018, which might actually mean good news for Eugenio Suarez as he tries to repeat that breakout. A reasonable option for the Reds could be to move Suarez over to shortstop to make room for Senzel at third, as current shortstop Zach Cozart will be a free agent at the end of this season. Another item brought up in Sam's column is an early look at the Cubs' closer role. Current stopper Wade Davis will be a free agent at the end of this season. That will create an opening at the back end of the Cubs' pen. Should they look for an in-house replacement, we'd be looking at names like lefty Justin Wilson and Carl Edwards, who's an Arizona Fall League graduate who put up electric skills in the first half. There's also Pedro Strope, who's used a 60% ground ball rate and a strikeout per inning dominance to post a 327 ERA and a 117 whip on the season. So these types of forward-looking tea leaves in our playing time tomorrow space can be very useful in setting up your keeper league teams for 2018 with some late-season fab bids. So take a look through them and see where you can get a head start on next season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Milwaukee shortstop Mauricio Dubon and Cincinnati starting pitcher Deck McGuire. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Before we begin, we'd like to congratulate Ronald Acuna. Our frequent flyer from August 18th was just named as USA Today's 2017 Minor League Player of the Year. So who do we have in store for this week? Let's kick off this week's edition of Frequent Flyers with 23-year-old Milwaukee Brewers shortstop Mauricio Dubon, who has developed a reputation as an unheralded guy who continually exceeds expectations, according to Chris Blessing, his August 23rd Miners column at BaseballHQ.com. Indeed, expectations probably weren't very high when the Red Sox drafted Mauricio Dubon in the 26th round in 2013. Yeah, he has performed well at every level. A career 297 hitter in the Miners, Mauricio Dubon has stolen at least 30 bases in each of the past three seasons, including 38 steals in 2017. However, it may be difficult to find playing time in Milwaukee behind incumbent shortstop Oswaldo Arcia and even newly acquired second baseman Neil Walker. That's why Mauricio Dubon, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. Still with an 85% contact rate in 2017, plus the versatility to play several positions, Mauricio Dubon is worth watching as a potential call-up and a keeper possibility this September. But he's not the only player worth watching this September. How about 28-year-old Cincinnati Reds right-hander Deck McGuire, who currently leads the AA Southern League in strikeouts. Drafted in the first round by the Toronto Blue Jays, 11th overall in 2010, ahead of notables such as Chris Sale and Cam Bedrosian, Deck McGuire appeared to have a reasonably quick path to the majors back then, given his college pedigree at Georgia Tech. Yet Deck McGuire has since bounced around between several organizations before signing with Cincinnati last November. And it appears that that move has paid off. 
Deck McGuire, who has a 431 career ERA in the minors, posted a 279 ERA through 27 starts in 2017. That's a pretty significant improvement. A closer look shows that Deck McGuire's command has improved as well. In fact, Deck McGuire's command ratio, which measures a pitcher's fundamental ability to throw strikes, has improved from a below average 2.2 strikeouts to walks in 2016 to elite three strikeouts-to-walks ratio in 2017. Even so, Cincinnati starters have produced a major league high 568 ERA in 2017, creating a need for quality starts quickly. But if you're looking for quality players quickly, look no further than Mauricio Dubon and Deck McGuire, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky, BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about a condescending whiner who doesn't like fantasy players. I don't know if you saw it, but there was an article about exit velocity last weekend in the New York Times magazine. I'm a long-time reader of the Times, and I respect the journalistic diligence it applies to most topics. And I'm a little bit familiar with the writer Jay Caspian Kang from his stints at Vice Media, Grantland, and The New Yorker, all pretty respectable media outlets. So I don't get why this lazy, ill-considered article with its petty and snotty asides got published. The piece has an interesting premise. Kang correctly notes a disconnect when it comes to advanced baseball stats. On the one side, you have casual fans in the mass media. And on the other side, top evaluators, team executives interested in maximizing player production. Oh, and nerds, of course, are on that other side. Kang notes that, and I quote, stats like FIP and UZR, close quote, aren't on stadium, quote, jumbotrons close quote, nor on sports talk radio, and he wonders why exit velocity has captured the public interest while other advanced baseball metrics, and again I quote, stagger off into the cemetery of useless acronyms, close quote. He then goes on to offer an explanation. He says exit velocity works in the public mind because it, quote, hasn't been explained to the public in a condescending whine, and because, quote, unlike catch-all measures of player value, whether wins above replacement or value over replacement player, exit velocity is free of the stink of actuarial tables deployed by team executives or, worse, fantasy baseball players, close quote. Overall, this article seems pretty pointless. Baseball is not alone in having arcana with very low levels of interest to most people. Pick any topic you like. Computers, knitting, photography, Jack Russell Terriers, video games, beer, astronomy, books, lazy and ill-considered New York Times magazine articles, anything you want. And you will find a small core of people who are very interested and involved and a vast mass of people who get interested only occasionally and involved only superficially. There's nothing wrong with that. We can't all be interested in everything. I like photography, and I know enough about it to be able to get a decent shot. But I'm not as deeply interested in photography as my brother Rick, a very accomplished amateur who's been deeply involved for more than 30 years. I only get interested in astronomy when there's an event in the news an eclipse, the Perseid meteor shower, something like that. But I have a friend and colleague, Dave, for whom astronomy has been a successful career. 
I like beer enough to know I prefer a hoppy IPA to a regular industrial lager, but I don't build craft brewery tours into my vacations like my friend Ross. But here's where I differ from Jay Caspian Kang. I don't begrudge Rick, Dave, or Ross his intense interest in his particular topic. In fact, like most people, I like to hear such people talk about their expertise. I like to ask questions about f-stops and retrograde motion and a damn tasty amber ale recommendation. I like the fact that when I talk to someone who knows more than I do, I learn something, if I choose to. And if I happen into a conversation and mention my interest in fantasy baseball and advanced stats, the person likewise does not emulate J. Caspian Kang and begrudge me my interest. If the person happens to be a casual baseball fan, he or she will almost always ask for more information, not less, about the advanced stats. I've discussed war and FIP and UZR and coefficient of restitution many times with many people at all levels of baseball fandom, and I always manage to convey some information that some people find interesting, without ever consulting J. Caspian Kang's actuarial tables and without ever lapsing into J. Caspian Kang's condescending whine. And you know what? 99% of the people I talk to appreciate learning a little something extra about baseball, and a few even get into it themselves. So, what does Jay Caspian Kang have against fantasy baseball players and other nerds? I think it all adds up to this. He doesn't find advanced stats interesting, although he likes to toss around some of them. He's a casual baseball fan who doesn't want to engage more deeply or intensely with the game. He doesn't see the usefulness of any stat he can't quickly grasp. A hundred mile an hour exit velocity or fastball? He can get that, so it's okay. But he doesn't see what we know from that stat that we don't from the plain ordinary home run or swinging strike, which roughly captures the same thing, he says, plus it tells you the outcome. A 5.1 command ratio, a 440 FIP. Whoa, put away those actuarial tables there, Edmund Halley. Enjoy the game. Look, if Jay Caspian Kang wants to limit his enjoyment and understanding of baseball to recognizing what a home run is, good for him. Some people go to NHL games only for the fights. Where he goes wrong is in assuming that because he prefers to look only at the surface game of baseball, the same should be true of all normal and right-thinking people, and that those of us who take any kind of deeper interest are condescending whiners, or nerds, or worse still, fantasy baseball players. And I just don't get why the New York Times Magazine chose to allow him to access to its pages so he could offer a condescending whine of his own on that topic. This is my last Master Notes of the season. I hope you enjoyed them as much as I enjoyed putting them together. Thanks to Ray and Brent and all my Baseball HQ colleagues for their ideas, and especially to all our readers and listeners. See you next season. I have some notes about Jay Caspian Kang's article. First, modern baseball stadiums don't have jumbotrons. They have Mitsubishi, Dactronics, and Panasonic big screens. Sony dropped the jumbotron name years ago. Second, the dead don't, quote, stagger off into the cemetery, close quote. Being dead, they are carried into the cemetery. Third, UZR is not an acronym. It's an ordinary abbreviation. An initialism, actually, if you're keeping score at home. Kang's own point isn't that the acronyms are useless, but that the stats themselves are. 
Third, he does all this after he has correctly noted that the stats are, in fact, incredibly useful for some people, executives and higher-level fans seeking to better understand the game. They're not for casual fans like, well, Jay Caspian Kang. Most advanced baseball stats don't use actuarial tables. And even if they did, actuarial tables are printed on paper. They don't have notable smells. And finally, the mention of Edmund Halley, you might be wondering. Well, in addition to discovering the comet that bears his name, speaking of astronomy, Edmund Halley was the first person to show how life expectation tables could be used to set insurance premiums. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 8th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 36 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Scott Pianowski, joining us from Yahoo Sports. Scott's a terrific baseball analyst and writer, and one of our favorite guests here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentator was Harold Nichols. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. You'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really helps us keep the podcast going when we can add new listeners. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our special guest expert will be Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. That's Mike Gianella. Next week on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, it is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.